Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. To explain our motto a little bit, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not, I know I've, I, it sounds a bit aggressive, perhaps, but it is, you know, I think it's a very uh, succinct way to say what Hitler says in Mein Kampf, which I'm going to read from this right now, because I think it's a good way to introduce the show as we talk about uh, the Middle Ages and Islam and Christianity in the Middle Ages, and uh, particularly uh, the Crusades and uh, the Reconquista. So Hitler says, it is the characteristic of our present materialized epic that our scientific education is turning more and more toward practical subjects. In other words, math, physics, chemistry, and so on. Necessary as this is for a period in which technology and chemistry rule, it is equally dangerous when the general education of a nation is more and more exclusively directed toward them. This education, on the contrary, must always be ideal. He means you know, idealistic mm -hmm. as opposed to material. It must be more in keeping with the humanistic subjects and offer only the foundations for a subsequent additional education in a special field. So this is why we do the show. I, I as a you know, I think there's too much emphasis in what people are talking about, even people who know what the what what's what, as an Englishman once said to me, you know what's what. With people who know what's what tend to talk too much about technical subjects and about es esoteric or, or even just esoteric things and get away from the core things you know and, and hitler's going to make this point in a second as i i keep reading but it's the core things of the humanist humanistic education and scientific education the basic things that everybody needs to know in order for education to serve its real purpose which is not personal development that's a secondary importance the main purpose is development of the group right so, yeah. Uh, otherwise, if we, if we, uh, okay, it must be more in keeping with the humanistic subjects and offer only the foundations for a subsequent additional education in a special field. Otherwise, we will be renouncing the forces which are still more important for the preservation of the nation than all technical or other ability. Especially in historical instruction, we must not be deterred from the study of antiquity. Roman history correctly conceived in extremely broad outlines is and remains the best mentor, not only for today, but probably for all time. Now, I, I, I did post this on my Telegram the other day just because uh, there's this trend right now of girls asking their man how often he thinks about the Roman Empire. <laughs> have, have you, have you seen this? That. I saw some of that I think yesterday for the first time. I'm oh, too sure about this this trend. Yeah. It's it's very funny. So it's women just asking their boyfriend or whatever, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And all these <laughs> girls are getting like, oh my god, because even normie guys apparently, I'm actually surprised by this myself. Even normies will say, yeah, you know, once a week. <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean, the movie Gladiator had a significant impact on pop culture. In, especially for our generation. Oh, okay. I mean, massive. I was first shown that by a friend of mine that is, um, that we're, we were child, childhood friends at the time, and you know we're not close anymore. But um, he's a normie now, and I mean, most of those kind of those are just like normie staples. Was just like ancient Rome. I don't know how it got popularized. There's a lot of like B movies that are also big into ancient Rome that I found, um, like The Eagle and stuff like that. Yeah, right. Uh, some that came out like um, even even in theaters not too long ago. Um, but I think. Rome has been popularized just enough to where the average normie 
if he's not thinking about Marvel or Star Wars, right? Might think about Rome every now and then. Right. Which Be- is because it's comparable, right? Like look at the things that's comparable in those things. Like there's, you know, legions of uniformed men and you know, Star Wars and things like that. And they're like, oh, you know, what's comparable what's the only comparable thing that any Americans usually taught about in ancient history? Rome. Yeah, I, I did see on Twitter uh there was some some guy, he was Asian and he was some science fag. And I don't know who the guy is. I'm sure he's famous, but he said something like, "Oh, what Rome? Like, I guess it depends on context. I mean, I I would think about it if I saw some Roman ruins, but I don't I don't think about it. Why would you think about Rome? It's like, well, well yeah. you're a you're a historyless Asiatic, right? And you know, that's that's fine for your people, but uh, Womp, yeah. you know, do you think about Han China ever? I don't know. Do I? No, no. I mean, Asian people. Oh, them? I would hope so. Oh, I would imagine it's in the forefront of their thought all the time, right? So. Yeah. Like, I, I would think it would be for me anyway. Yeah. But, I mean, to us, that's... I, I'm assuming that that's just... It has to be... Um, well, how often do you think about the Roman issue. Empire? The Roman Empire? I don't know. I, I, I probably, how many times have you thought about it today? Before oh, we talked about it? Oh. Uh, or this week? Well, no, earlier today, I think I probably thought about it. I think maybe at least on the drive... At least on the drive over here, I thought about it at least once because I was listening to a podcast about the Third Crusade, and that was obviously like, you know, they were talking about the Eastern Byzantine Empire and everything else, and I was like, okay, this obviously pertains to Rome, and, you know, you can't can't think about anything in medieval history without thinking about Rome, in my opinion. It doesn't work that way. It's because it's continuity, right? Yeah. Um, But I don't don't know... Uh, uh, on a, I think it, probably Rome crosses my thought at least once a day. Yeah, no, at definitely. least like it has to because it, it's so pertinent. I don't know. To me, it's pertinent to every, almost everything you think about in some way, shape, or form. Like, oh yeah, the Romans did that, or like you're driving on a or road. You're thinking about some some great figure from Roman history, like oh, hmm, that's what would Sulla do? Yeah, you know, yeah. I you know, or in my in my opinion, as I'm driving in America and I drive over a pothole and I'm like, the Romans wouldn't allow this bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> those know? Roman like, roads still work. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is crap. <laughs> what kind of empire is this? It's, so you think about Rome. Honestly, I, I could see I could see a normie. I guess the enormity thinking about Rome at least on, on a weekly basis, at least once a week, I can see it popping up. Do you remember the statistics of what it said? No, uh, it, thing? this is just an internet phenomenon. Nobody, nobody knows. How, oh, they're not. How ta- they're not taking studies on this. How? God damn it! This, I mean, these but this is why we don't have information in the world because no, no one takes advantage of these things. Uh, Hitler goes on. The Hellenic ideal of culture should also remain preserved for us in its exemplary beauty we must not allow the greater racial community to be torn asunder by the differences of individual peoples mm-hmm. oh, i'm a nordic <laughs> i mean in that kind of, or oh, 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 screw you guys uh well you have to i mean you have to define what your racial community is Name obviously it, but well yeah obviously but you know i think uh, you can say broadly European is kind of a thing. I mean, like there's, I, or I mean, I, I don't. Fair, look, uh, maybe we I, shouldn't I get into that. That's you know, sure, sure. We, we all bounce each other. Like this right. is part of the fun. Like I, we are. I will continue, and you will continue. We will all continue uh, yeah. to make fun of the Swedes and the British, <laughs> and well, everybody, honestly, French, and yeah. like, and and we're we're in for a ribbing as Americans. Like we get it. Okay, yep. fine. We're burgers. We're everybody gets mutt it. people. Fine, whatever. Uh, <laughs> We must not allow the greater racial community to be torn asunder by differences of individual peoples. The struggle that rages today is for very great aims. A culture, and here's the, the, the sort of thesis of our show, a culture combining millennia and embracing Hellenism and Germanism is fighting for its existence. Mm. So 
that goes to the point of why we talk about German shit so much, so much uh, just because it is not... I feel like America and Britain, our cultural development sort of froze in about 1800. Mm. And America and Britain, like English speakers, were kind of out of the loop on what was going on in Germany in its like great age of academic and uh, humanistic development from right. the 1850s or so or 1840s to uh, 1945. You're talking about the, uh, the great philosophical uh, leaps and bounds they made or like I, with anthropology. Less philosophy. Sure, you, yes, philosophy. Uh, and that does get talked about somewhat. Uh, people like to talk about Heidegger. Well, I mean, like Schopenhauer is another yeah, one, right? You had, you know, uh, yeah, you name it, you have a bunch of them. There's also, um, you have guys like... Uh, uh, well, gosh, he, he was a he was a Darwinist, or he was he was the one who popularized Darwin. Haeckel, uh, Haeckel, yeah, Haeckel, Ernst Haeckel, yeah. Uh, that's another one if we're talking about hard sciences, because that's that's a guy who popularized hard sciences big time in Central Europe, yeah. as far as the continental Europe was concerned. But I mean, more so the the, philosoph the philosophers get some attention, but who don't get any attention in in the English world is all of the humanists all the historians mm -hmm. all all of those those secondary fields below philosophy oh, my favorite are just one? totally unknown ancient what? egypt the egyptian the egyptian phenomenon the germans did the most work in the late 1800s on bringing egypt to light and the only person and mesopotamia and mesopotamia and the only person that we ever hear of in the western world and i'm sure you have I'm oh, sure you've heard tut discoverer guy budge wallace budge dr wallace budge he is the guy like he's at the early 1900s he was he's the only egyptologist that we ever hear of as far as ancient history or as you know this big discoverer and the, and the thing yeah me meanwhile the the big work of uh on on the history of the ancient world was by edward meyer mm. uh it's like a multi-volume i tried to order it but you have to like get it from germany and it's a pain in the ass nowadays to get books from germany one it's expensive two it's shipping and yeah three i don't know but you can get it online and, and kind of peruse Edward Meyer's uh, history of antiquity. Yeah. It goes from ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, through Greece and Rome. And Edward Meyer was like the guy, uh, maybe not in all of Western civilization, but he was certainly the top intellectual circa 1900, uh, early 20th century in all these fields. And he like summarized all of it. And he was also an anti-Semite. Oh, <laughs> another actually one of his cohorts who was also in that boat, but did he was he leaned more towards what we're going to talk about a little bit later is like the Middle Ages, the European Middle Ages and Crusades and whatnot. Is von Sybil? Um, Who's that? Uh, he is just another contemporary of his. It was like another uh, a guy that was a historian, a German historian of the turn of the century uh, that never gets talked about. Who did a ton of work on um, a lot, like a lot of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, from the Crusades uh, was information that he that he you know kind of pioneered and brought up and information that that was uh, brought back from the Hospitaller Knights and uh, any type of the, the you know the origin the origin of the of the Teutonic uh, orders and whatnot he had all that information and he kind of brought that mostly to light uh, for the world at the time so we didn't really have a lot of that information beforehand yeah um, so yeah he doesn't get talked about at all but he was a he was a contemporary of um, of Meyer actually yeah so that's uh it it really like if you i've been for the last like couple years just reading uh wikipedia religiously and i don't i don't <laughs> read like yeah wikipedia sucks if you're going to read something political like don't try to read the articles on i don't know jfk assassination or like the anything post 1945 is retarded but like for anything before 1945 that doesn't involve jews wikipedia <laughs> it, it's just great like there's just 
incredible amount of information and mm-hmm. i'll read it uh often in german because it's german is easy enough for you know me to read it and i'll just find articles like click to the next article click to the next article and just go down uh oh who is this guy who is this guy what was this thing and it's amazing the amount of things that you don't know or aren't even talked about that like help you build your world picture mm-hmm. um and a lot of these articles aren't even in english uh, I'll regularly find articles in it by linking through German articles oh, or, right, or yeah. that just aren't in English uh, because it's totally forgotten. But you're, you read it and you're like, that this guy actually seems kind of important. This information seems important. Oh, as much as on cities and towns and stuff, a lot of geographical information is all in their native languages in Europe, and they yeah. don't have that in English a lot of times. The one article I found was on a uh, genealogy, a, a a incident that happened in 1919 in Czechoslovakia. What's now well. Czechoslovakia we're still calling it that uh whatever Bohemia right and it was basically like a a sort of Charlottesville uh (laughs) where like 50 people got killed what uh the Germans in the Sudetenland were protesting because they wanted to either become part of the Reich or become part of Austria not become part of this new uh zombie state under uh Masaryk the you know president yeah interesting guy but president of the Czech Republic or what would be Czechoslovakia and like this article is just not in English and and it's not even referenced in like English language literature but yes there were you can you can establish these facts there were big fights over and in in uh, as the blockade is going on people are starving all over Central Europe uh, and they the 14 points of Wilson are that we should have self-determination well we agree <laughs> let's have self-determination right what does that look like oh wait but Sudetenland is with uh Bohemia that doesn't make any sense right so anyway interesting things that you don't find out in the world until you start learning different languages so yeah Quite uh, in things. the future I I foresee that just as as every ancient Roman could uh, read ancient Greek every educated american and englishman will at least be able to read german right and maybe french <laughs> no fuck that italian <laughs> italian oh, that's i mean italian and latin are close and similar and they should be learned honestly so but anyway so moving into our topic today i spent a lot of august reading up i read the poem of of uh the poem of el cid mm. el cid the campeador <laughs> he's uh a he was the sort of hero of, of medieval Spain. He's the hero of medieval Spain, right. uh, a folk hero, but also a historical person. And his full name is Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, El Cid Campeador. And you, as someone who speaks Spanish, right? Uh, it, it's interesting in his name <laughs> that he's got like, every piece of sort of Spanish culture or the, the, the cultures that influence Spain, you can see in his name. Rodrigo mm-hmm. is, you know, Roderick is a Gothic right. Germanic name. Diaz de Vivar, Spanish, right. Latin. The ta- Iberian, um, yeah. El Cid or El Cid, yeah. as uh, he would have said, right. is the Spanish way to say Said, which is the Arabic word for Lord. And he acquired that title because he led both Christians and Muslims, and uh, the, the Arabs called him, or the, the Muslims would call him, you know, my lord, Sayidi. And uh, this, his other uh, moniker is Campeador, which is uh, the Spanish way to say Campi Doctor, 
So master of the field, master of the battlefield. So, I so. mean, he's, he's one of a number of have medieval you, have heroes. You, have you, have, you haven't read the, the poem of Elphid? I have actually not ever read that. So I, it's, it's kind of like... I know of him, obviously, but most anybody that, that's... I had this book for about 15 history years. Has, but... or I had this book for like 12 years and I never read it. Oh, well. Um, but it is sort of the Spanish, like Beowulf, or the Spanish uh, Song of Roland. It's, it's like their first work of literature, their first, like, ep- it's an epic poem. It's about the same length as Beowulf. Hmm. It's 3,000-some hundred lines. Uh, and it's actually, in the, the the style of it, as you can see on the page, is, I mean, you were flipping through it. Yeah. It's actually kind of, it superficially looks like... Yeah, it's uh, written with some form of canter to it. It's it's it looks a lot like the Beowulf uh, meter. Yeah. Uh, it it has like a a kaisura in the middle of the line, so it's it's the the lines are split into two halves, uh, because this would have been performed uh, at least at first it was would have been performed in front of you know people as a as a song. Yeah. Uh, and you'd sing the de- sing about the deeds of of El Cid. When was, was do you know if this was published around how so, how long after his like, death was so like was like a lot of books or like a lot of these epic poems it was sort of forgotten about from like twelve or thirteen you know the the high middle ages until the romantic era roughly so the song of El Cid wasn't rediscovered until like the late seventeen hundreds mm. in a manuscript and they were like oh wow this is really good we didn't know about this <laughs> uh, because a- after sort of the the era of epic poetry I mean the same thing is true of Beowulf. Um, or the Nibelungenlied, or uh, these things weren't like always part of the literary tradition until they were rediscovered centuries right. later. And, the, the, and then everyone the... was like, oh, wow, this actually is the foundation of our literature. It became unfashionable sometime in the 1300s, so we forgot about it, but right. this actually is really good. Which was, a, that was one of the best things about, you know, the late, I would say the late Renaissance into Baroque era is that that switch into looking at history, that, that big uh, push to, to really discover where we came from. Uh, late 1600s and into the 1700s where we started having museums and all these other types of, of cool things and discovering these ancient poems and things culminating into the 1800s and the, the gothic revival and the romanticism and all this other fun stuff um, but so but so do we know then when if this was published like I'm assuming it's, it had to have been published again sometime after his death right it, unless, yeah, it, it well, wasn't written so it was written of he the time. died. He, so he died in 1099 uh, oh okay and th- the poem must have been sung for some time before that. They think it might have reached its final form in like the 1140s or so. And then the manuscript that we have is dated 1207. They think, although they think it was actually written in 1307 and it might have just been antedated because the handwriting is, uh, a f- it's the handwriting style is apparently too late for, it couldn't have been written in 1207 because people didn't write in that style. Oh, weird. Yeah, you can actually like, I mean, Scholars can do this kind of thing. It's right. pretty cool. Yeah, you know, writing styles do change over the course of a hundred years. You know, and um, so okay, so then there's they're thinking that it's it's the work of composition is sometime towards the late Middle Ages. Then yeah, okay, and it's it's hard like like many of the topics that we talk about. It's hard to find information about this in English. There's a couple translations. I had to read it twice to really remember it because it's hard to a lot of this poem actually depends on you knowing the specific geography of spain right uh i mean more so than other epic poems like even more so than than the nibelungenlied or, or than beowulf it's it it every place on there is a real place 
and people actually have traced out you can you can go to spain and follow the route that el cid followed when he was exiled from castile and when he had to go and, and move into um the area of like a Saragossa, Saragossa, Saragossa. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're. I'm not gonna stop making that. It's not a joke. It's serious. That's how they say it. <laughs> but he, he, you can actually trace out where the exact towns that where he had fights and where he, yeah. where he moved and where all these incidents happened. That's nuts. I mean, so is this the only record that we have of him, though? No, it's not. So there are there are historical, like more historical records. There's a Latin uh, sort of history from closer to his uh, soon after his lifetime about El Cid and there are mm-hmm. some other uh, minor works as well about him so we are and then there's mention of him in Arabic sources as well so we're able to piece together who the real Rodrigo de Vivar was and you know the time that he lived in Spain I think it's it's common knowledge that the Muslims were kicked out of Spain in 1492. That was like the final yeah, in Grenada, yeah. grasp. It was like finally the Muslims were kicked out of Grenada in 1492. And also, for most of our listeners, Grenada is not a strange island. Uh, what it is is a southern uh, province of Spain. Oh, yeah, Spain. that's a good point. Yeah, not that. Yeah, most, not, not, not the Marines like attacked Grenada in a glorious war under Ronald Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, a, yeah, that, yeah, that little town in Spain. Most people don't recognize that, but yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it was... Um, it, it was it was a tiny little town or whatever the heck, but the, there was a region. The whole region was controlled. It was considered Grenada. It was like the whole southern yeah, region north right. of what is today Gibraltar. Um, it's, it's right north of that. So that's that southeastern coastline of Spain um, but, is, is but by, considered. Yeah, you know, by the, the time that Ferdinand and Isabel took over Grenada, yeah. the Muslims are already like done pretty much. Yeah. The Muslims actually... So this El Cid lived... 400 years before that. Right. And also note that at the time that, uh, by the time that Ferdinand and Isabel had kicked out the Muslims from Grenada, the Portuguese had already made colonies in Morocco. Uh-huh. Uh, they'd already started invading Africa at that point in time. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess that, that's that's how big of a t- tide turn. It had been going on for nearly 100 years, so there was already a massive tide turning. Well, the tide, well that's what I was getting yeah. to. Like, the, the tide turn really happened around the time of El Cid. Right. Because his patron was uh, Alfonso VI of Castile, and whose father was Ferdinand I. And Ferdinand I had al- the, the Spanish monarchs were already making vassals of a lot of the Muslim states in Spain. Muslim power, I think, really the turning point was about 1030, mm-hmm. because in about 1030, the Umayyad Caliphate that had ruled at Cordoba for 300 years finally like broke apart, and. And there are little uh, Muslim states called taifas all over the Spanish peninsula and in different, uh, there's like 30 or 50 of them. And then they, they consolidated. So by the time that El Cid was campaigning, there was six or eight of them. Yeah, because it, 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 it was an economic thing with Cordoba. So yeah. I, we, but this, I don't but, know, we might have mentioned that, I think, in an earlier episode about Cordoba being a massive economic Oh, yeah, no, Cor- Cordoba was one of the, one of the, if not the biggest city in Europe at this time. Yeah. It was bigger than Paris or London. Yeah, and I, I, I've mentioned this book almost every episode we've ever had i know brief history of the future mentions uh jewish activity of mercantilism in corridor we'll we'll talk about the jews in a second but let's let's continue i was just gonna throw that little thing about little spice man uh yeah so the spanish already had the they weren't in control of the peninsula right but they had the upper hand the christians had the upper hand by his time now there was a little bit of of a reverse later in El Cid's life and after him because there was a big religious movement in Morocco 
that revived uh, sort of revived Islam among the Berbers, mm. and it's called the um, the uh, Al Murabitin, the Al Muravits, mm. and they were like a fanatical puritanical religious cult, and uh, their big leader was uh, Yusuf uh, Ibn Tashfin. And he was a a very ascetic, uh, desert Berber. <laughs> you know the people um, you've maybe seen in movies about like North Africa. They'll have guys in the blue turbans with veils. Yeah, yeah. So the, are the, those aren't Tuareg though, are they? They're the Tuaregs. Oh, they are Tuareg. That's the Tuareg. Oh, okay, okay. So I'll and they call them. Yeah, they're called like the veiled ones, and they take great mm. pride in the, that the men are veiled, and like the, the Tuaregs <laughs> like make fun of all the ever, the rest of humanity. Uh, and call us effeminate because we don't wear veils. Ooh, that's a pretty serious flex. <laughs> Live in the desert, grow saffron, Actually, you know, and veil your face. And, kind and of you'll awesome. Like this, you'll, you'll, you, as an anthropologist, will appreciate mm-hmm. this. Carlton Kuhn, the great uh, anthropologist mm. of the mid 20th century, he considered them, or he talked about them a lot as being part of the. Uh, broader european race because you actually find a lot of blue haired or not blue haired <laughs> blue, i think it's the american race blue talking eyed about. Yeah. blue eyed people uh, among the tuaregs that's also with the red hair as well if i'm not mistaken uh, i don't the, know about the, red hair the berbers is like what's what's do you know what the relation is like i need to do research on that between the relation between the berbers and the tuaregs and, and the tuaregs are berbers i mean they speak a they speak a berber dialect mm. but um so there has to be the racial component then. Yeah. Okay. There, there are more uh, white-looking Berbers, particularly the people in Kubail, the Kubail region of uh, Algeria. It's a little coastal region just to the east of Algiers. Yeah. Are very Nordic-looking, and if you see them in Algeria, you can spot one like very easily. Like that's a Kubail person because mm. they, and they will like insist on speaking French. <laughs> <laughs> Womp. <laughs> But uh, but anyway, back yeah. to back to the middle, back to the uh, the ten hundreds, mm. the Murabits, uh, Al Murabitin, they united all the Berber states and built an empire stretching like stretching from the Sahel, from like the the black part of Africa, yeah. down like Ghana area, all the way up the West Atlantic coast of Africa through the desert up into Morocco, and then started involving them sp- in themselves in the politics of Spain mm. because the Spanish, like, petty lords, the Taifa leaders, had all become degenerates. And <laughs> they needed to beg uh, their their uh, Tuareg uh, masters for help fighting the Christians because the Christians were starting to uh, to beat them. Oh, buddy. Yeah. Hmm. So, but yeah, also for geography's sake, um, the Sahel, a lot of people get this confused or might not know about it. The Sahel and the Sahara are two different deserts, but they're technically the same. So well, the, the Sahel is, isn't that, that's the, like the transition region between the, the Sahara and the gold, jungle. The gold and ivory coast. Yeah. The, mm. the, the, the money coast <laughs> with, so basically you have the Sahara desert, which is the, what everybody knows of this giant, you know, up to, up to Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, right? Like these, this giant what people think of as desert desert uh the sahel is like this arid steppe kind of deserty place that's got a lot of it's it's extremely mountainous uh but the mountains are, are very just you know craggy rocky terrain mm-hmm. uh which leads we well we're still modern day people are fighting there today with uh between france and then a bunch of nations are, are having you know insurgencies of terrorism and all kinds of other strange stuff the tuaregs are actually still a thing but yeah no and um, what's what's remarkable about yeah about the Tuaregs too, or about this the the Morabit Empire, mm. is that it's a north south empire. Yeah, like the the difficulty of controlling 
north south like going like especially most, that most terrain. of you think of our east west because it's this is a very jared diamond point well no but it goes with but with, it's true yeah because like, it's geography it's harder to control the area from southern spain to ghana than to like control all the north african right. coast but especially like, with with the one the size of of west africa let's put this into perspective for most people right because this is a big deal when it comes to trade routes and everything else when, it, when we're, we're putting this into perspective for how powerful this area of the world was at the time of el Cid, right so all of west africa with you know like the 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 uh the bazaars of marrakesh and all this other stuff are massive spice and trade route hubs uh with all the fuck like it's got like multiple continents worth of goods ends up here on this side of the world right in morocco um by this time of the arab trade and so controlling and and the size of this this is this is larger than europe like going from the top of morocco i I read i read something on this that basically was like a a five-month journey to get from the northern stretches of Morabit territory to the south. I believe it, and I'm surprised it's not longer, in all, in all honesty. I mean, like, it takes five months to get through the Congo today, <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> the roads are so shit. So let alone, you know, what it was like to take camels <laughs> through the desert back then and during monsoons and all kinds of other horrible things. Right, and so... And this but was, the resources, the, the, the trade, resources they control. And what resources? Oh, gold, ivory. And, and here's the deal. Back then, so... Wait, not, you're forgetting the main one, though. Slaves. Oh, uh, the other main. Oh, one. sorry. Uh, wait. Carpets. What? What do tears make? Salt. Oh, salt. Oh, right. I forgot about the salt. Yeah. So the right. salt mines. That's yes. Yeah. So okay, tons of those. I forgot about the salt mines. Salt mines were really a big deal back then too. There was a massive, massive industry in the Middle Ages. Um, but yeah, no, the ones that I was just usually thinking of is just the mercantile ones. <laughs> usually, the ones that make you a lot of money. Uh, like uh, again, ivory was a big was a big I deal. Mean gold, yeah. yeah. Like, but gold was a big deal back then. So much so, they had so much gold in that area, like in the south. Like the Tuaregs were beyond rich. I think this is what probably fueled their ability to take out uh, their competitors. Uh, is the tapping into this gold, uh, the gold resources they had down there? Because apparently, at some point in time later than this, and I'd imagine if 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 the later civilizations had this much gold, then the Tuaregs and the early civilizations had even more gold. Um, is that when they they took a, a delegation, an Arab delegation, or this is Islamic? They weren't Arabic, um, but there was an Islamic delegation from the Sahel region uh, down there in the Gold Coast area, and they went up to pay tribute, I think, to some caliph. Uh, in Arabia or somewhere up there. Uh, and apparently along the way, they distributed so much gold along the trade route. Oh, you're thinking of uh, Musa, the king of Mali. Yeah. and he, he, Yeah. I, I, you know, I took AP World. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he gave away so much gold that he devalued, he devalued gold on the entirety of the world market. That's absurd. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I, they don't even do that today. Like that's like, that's unheard of even today with that kind of wealth. Wow. Like, if Elon Musk can figure out asteroid mining, maybe we can. Right, <laughs> he could be become the new king of Mali. <laughs> you know, he's African, right? So, <laughs> you know, so um, but yeah, no. That so there was. I, I would imagine that the 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 um the source of the financial power that was able to propel them, that the Islamic forces at that time into you know or back into uh, the Iberian Peninsula would have been from these southern Sahel uh, gold mines. Mm. Yeah. So th- there's a lot there's so much to talk about with this uh you know Spain at this time and the and the the Muslims I mean, we I did that podcast uh back in June I guess it was uh on Islam and 
I think it's only appropriate now that we do a podcast talking about uh, white people fighting Muslims (laughs) (laughs) to show where our our true allegiances are. But uh, there's a couple things. I'll just sort of trace it out so we can we can, you know, let the listener know where we're going. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's there's a whole uh, idea of Jews in Spain and uh, the 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 so-called Andalusian paradise. Uh, That's a big thing. There's also just the, the the discussion of El Cid, the the song of El Cid, the poema de Mio Cid, as a, a work of literature. Yeah, uh, and then also just the the sort of history of the Christians and the history of Spain in general. So, start off with that. Uh, as you know, uh, Spain was a Roman province. Mm. The Romans fought. It was like the Roman Vietnam. <laughs> the Romans spent 200 years from like the time of Hannibal to the time of augustus pacifying, pacifying. these celts effectively who had a, celts and uh, you know, there's a whole ethnographical question yeah there's that. a bunch of them uh bosques and uh, they, pr- they had runes they did have there was a bunch of languages they did have, they definitely had runic languages on iberia pre-rome so there was civilization well, let's not say kind. runic because that implies germanic but uh, well well no there, there are kind of no, similar to uh, it, uh, i suppose uh, well, all right fair uh, fair you fair. can talk about anth- you can talk about trade <laughs> all right you fine, can talk about your good. trade and your, your anthropology <laughs> all you want i'm gonna talk about languages <laughs> iberian the the ancient language the ancient languages of spain are known to have been uh something called iberian which is unclassified because there's so little fair, uh, fair. knowledge about it. and that's i think what you're you're referring to yeah there's some inscriptions in it because uh, i heard it called iberian runic because that thing is where yeah, I, maybe they call it that. that's what i heard it called that again it could be a misconception so you know it, it's there's been a, a Just lot of, of the shapes look similar to runes, yeah it's, like, it's an alphabet but, but it sticks it's so so does any type of stick there's just not enough knowledge about it to classify it but mm. many people there's mountains of literature about the people called the Bosques who live in northern Spain in the area of like Navarre and uh, uh, that the Pamplonia mm. and these are people that speak a non-Indo-European language incredibly <laughs> it's white Afghanistan right it, well, and it's like the, it's the yeah. ultimate white Afghanistan it's called uh, and, or Andorra there's a country there today called Andorra in the surrounding uh, the surrounding area is the Basque country um, well Andorra's a little bit yeah Andorra's to the east of Basque country but right. the fact that these Basques have been speaking a non-Indo-European language to this day is incredible right uh, that they've never assimilated and their blood type their blood type in the Basque is almost almost oh, all negative right all well, RH uh, negative it's, there's, but they're mostly O's there's a bunch well. of O's yes there's a bunch of O's but they do have A's they do, O's and A's are the most prominent it's O and A negatives um, but it's all again they're almost they're almost 100% RH negative groupings so we're seeing a lot of these proto, these ancient racial groups of ancient. Yeah, Europe I mean, there's being, there's uh, uh, people yeah. have hypothesized that that the Bosques speak what the Neanderthals spoke, which is kind of based, which is, but <laughs> which is lulls, unprovable. And yeah, <laughs> interesting to think about, but sounds like a bias. We'll never too. <laughs> we'll never be known, right? Yeah, but I, I, that that would be an interesting thing to think about, though. I mean, if like, they've tried to connect Bosque with like Etruscan or languages in the ca- as far afield as the Caucasus because you know you're looking for well where is there a language that isn't Indo-European that might have some Similarity. morphological similarities in right it, yeah. but apparently nothing no nothing right. nothing has ever been proved and it's been you know there's been 150 years of research that's gone into this and no one's ever come up with anything does anybody sp- like do is there a way to speak like to be taught Bosque other than going there and like getting immersed in this uh, yeah there's books on it I 
if you want some recommendations i got some that's like all right cool <laughs> i think it'd be very interesting thing to go out there and find out what, what it's about because i i did i was uh this is how i got into this el cid thing i was reading i found this book on on bosque at a uh, hmm. bookstore a few months ago and I, I started like even just comprehending like a sentence or two of it mm. is like such a mind fuck like even as someone who read tries to read foreign languages all the time like dealing with a non-indo-european language that you've never studied before like you can memorize the sentence you can memorize the words and when you finally get it it's like wow it just feels like such an accomplishment to Does like it understand something anything similar to latin i don't know what it sounds like i only know what it looks like on the page well, I mean, does it look like anything i latin? guess i could look it up on youtube but <laughs> yeah, what does it sound like speaking i've never i've never heard it i've only ever studied i guess like their their you know like their anthropological migration elements to it yeah. like well migration they didn't really migrate they were they were there constantly um but, but um, there's tons of research onto them is regarding their their blood groups and whatnot mm -hmm. and their relation to the surrounding areas. That's like a that's been a fascination since. But the it's 1800s. clearly like a, just completely isolated. Yeah, they are, and but they're not the only nearly, ones. Nearly either. completely there's isolated. There's a few others that are that are categorized in that in that weird group. Like as I'm sure you know, the Laps, right? The Laps and Sammies and those are those groups up in way far north Scandinavia. Oh, they're uh, the same as far as blood type. They're no, 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 they're just, they're just, yeah, they're, they're considered oh, outlier. Yeah, yeah, they're considered like completely outlier elements that are like, where did these come from kind of yeah. thing, right? Like there's like these, these strange outliers. Because um, the Laps and Sami, everybody likes to say, oh, they're just Asians. Like, they're not though. You know, they're not like every other group that comes from the exact same, you know, uh, geographical regions, latitudes and everything else like that. Like they're not like the Inuit, you know, racial groups or anything else like that. They don't look like them or, or, or act like them. Yeah. I mean, you do see this across history that mountain areas preserve languages mm. and racial types much look at Switzerland. longer. Like, you know, I know, I know you, yeah. you, I know your feelings on Switzerland. Um. <laughs> I, I wish there was some uh, attestation of what was spoken in, in Switzerland in like Roman times. I mean, there's, oh, Helvetia, there's this, wasn't it? Uh, well, I mean, before Indo-European, right? Oh, right, right. There's, there's this, there's some inscriptions in this language called Radic that is, mm. is proved. I mean, there's very little information, but it is proved that it's related to Etruscan. Radic? Uh, yeah, Ratian or Radic. Sounds kind of cool. Like the, <laughs> the Roman province of Ratia. Mm. Anyway, so back to, back to Rome. Right. So <laughs> the Rome. Romans conquered these people mm. at long last, and most of Spain was Romanized, mm. hence why they speak uh, Spanish. Right. And when the Roman Empire fell, the Visigoths uh, moved. They The Visigoths were moved from uh, like the area of like Dacia, Romania and uh, through the Balkans and then came into Italy, sacked Rome in 410. Uh, Alaric died in Calabria and they buried him in a stream. And then <laughs> they moved up into France and they settled in like what's now Aquitania and then in Spain. And they set up a kingdom in Spain that lasted for uh, about 300 years. Mm -hmm. And in the time of El Cid, the kingdoms of northern Spain still regarded themselves as successor states to the Visigothic kingdom that had been destroyed by the Muslims when they invaded on uh, in the uh, the 700s. Right. Uh, so you still had like a lot of like Visigothic habits, and they used like Visigothic law uh, or, or you know what elements of Visigothic law and Roman law, although the Gothic language had died out probably by the five or six hundreds. Uh, and they'd all assimilated and become, you know, good, uh, good Latins. <laughs> Womp. But, um, so yeah, the Muslims took over and then you had that 
about 300 years of total Muslim dominance of Spain. I mean, there, there were Christian kingdoms that survived in the very north, even early on. And there was like a sort of a, a resistance, like, uh, what's that movie? Oh, any number of movies, but the movie about the hunting girl, uh, you know, the hunting girl. the the hunger games oh <laughs> <laughs> the hunger it was right. like the hunger games they had like a little a little christian kingdom up there in the north or a few christian mini states mm. and <laughs> charlemagne <clears throat> did invade and took some of like northern spain and this is where if you ever read uh the song of roland i have not no i, uh, I know it's like I, i'm 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 unfortunately not as versed in my poetry as i like to be i I really only read epic literature. Mm-hmm. I've, I've discovered. I've tried to read like novels and other poetry, and I, I try to be a well-rounded person. But when it comes down to it, I really only care about epic literature. Uh, that's fair, <laughs> and it, I think it shows. You know, <laughs> the Song of Roland has a lot of parallels with the Song of El Cid, but the Song of Roland is based on a true uh, incident where Charlemagne did a campaign in northern Spain with the Franks, and he fought against the Muslims, and he was trying to make saragossa into a dependency and when charlemagne's army was retreating back across the uh the pyrenees at a, a pass called ranceval or rancheval ranch ranchy ranchy valley ranchy valley <laughs> the ranchy valley battle. uh the the uh franks were uh, the frank the frankish rear guard was ambushed and in the poem it's told that they're ambushed by the pagans uh the muslims and it's uh, but in the historical fact, they were ambushed by the Basques. Oh. Yes. Huh. And it's very funny reading the Song of Roland because it's kind of like reading, if you were to read an epic poem about like the Iraq war told by uh, like a, I don't know, a a Muslim hating like Bush supporter, that's kind of... <laughs> When I, because I read that, so I, why that comparison? I read this when I was in middle school. And I was like, man, this is funny because they're, they're talking about these Muslims. Like they have no idea about Islamic theology or like anything. They call the God of the Muslims Apollon in it. What? It's just bizarre. Like they're just making shit up. And all the Muslim names like don't even sound like Arabic. They're just like, like a, a ridiculous French way of, 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 bastardizing a muslim word <laughs> that's <laughs> great just complete like disregard for like any culture or right, like the enemy. like fuck these people <laughs> that's next <laughs> they attacked list. us it was bad <laughs> and so the basic <clears throat> plot of the story is that roland is the hero he's charlemagne's uh general he's one of his, his leaders and he's in charge of the rear guard they get ambushed roland is of course too stubborn and proud prideful to summon help in time and he's like no we don't need help we'll beat these muslims by ourselves <laughs> and so they fight and there's there's many many it's just like paragraphs of gruesome descriptions of people getting cut in half with swords damn and then they finally get around to like the next plot point which is where roland goes to his second by the name of oh fuck i forget uh and and finally they're like okay we're gonna blow the horn the, the like emergency horn that will summon the main body back to come and help us. Yeah. And so they blow the horn and like Roland blows out his temples because he blows the horn so hard. And then what? <laughs> I don't I'm not really sure what that means, but it basically like it, the the like little blood vessels in his face all burst because he blows it so hard. Did he die? Uh, no, he doesn't die from that. Oh, OK. Uh, <laughs> He dies. Uh, all the the guard is annihilated. The rear guard is annihilated. But the the Franks come back and like slaughter the Muslims and then go butcher more people. Oh, okay. But they <laughs> weren't actually fighting Muslims. 
Well, in the historical fact, they weren't. But in the poem, they're fighting Muslims. Right. But it's, so in historical fact, they're just killing Bosques the whole time. They're just, they're just genociding Bosques. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. The follies of history. <laughs> so it, it is, you know, it's interesting to compare the two. But I haven't really, we haven't talked about the Song of El Cid yet. So we can't, we'll, we'll come back to the comparisons. Um. Is there an epic style history like this, but from the boss perspective? Unfortunately, no. These people don't write anything down. They really haven't? There's like no, no. serious history of them? Like the There are serious histories, but we don't have like cool folk history or anything. Mm. So, unfortunately not. Damn. But, uh, so that's, that's circa 800. Mm. So fast forward another 250 years. El Cid is born at a town called Vivar in 1043 and he was uh, a minor noble he wasn't anybody of importance but he was he was very renowned for his bravery and so he was able to like come up through the ranks the big problem in Spain at the time when in about the 1060s so Ferdinand the first was was king of of uh, king of Leon Leon was actually the senior uh, state Right. within the, the Spanish states. There's Leon, and then to the west, uh, Galicia, uh, the most western, and then to the east, Castile, and then east of that, like Navarre and... Uh, Aragon, I think. Aragon, yeah. yeah. And so Ferdinand had united all the Christian areas and, and had vassalized some of the minor Muslim states. But then he preposterously and inexplicably on his death gave his kingdom to his three sons the and his two daughters let it be known in the most like insane way possible rather than picking one and saying okay you're in charge he split it up which is the most boomer move yeah it was yeah exactly it was a, it was a <laughs> fucking boomer move it's like you you know you have to keep the keep the kingdom together you know yeah. these children are not going to be able to cooperate even if they have the best of intentions it with doesn't matter other, they're not going to be able yeah. to cooperate and you just divided your kingdom five ways yes so that really fucked them and <laughs> alfonso or originally el cid was a uh, sort of knight with the son sancho and sancho was able to defeat uh the other well, one of the other brothers garcia who was put in charge of galicia fittingly mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Garcia united those two and then also kicked alfonso out of uh leon and so he, he united the three main uh kingdoms uh but then shortly after that he died uh, probably assassinated in a siege of this little town that had been left to one of the daughters by the name of Uraka. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've tried to look in the etymology of this name. There's no real satisfactory explanation. It superficially looks Germanic, but it's supposedly Latin, but I I don't trust the etymology there. But maybe they were trying. Whatever. Maybe they were trying to be we was. Uh, whatever. Yeah, know. maybe it was a we was thing. Yeah. Uraka... What's interesting about this girl is <laughs> she is thought to be have had any um, all the chroniclers say, or at least two of them say, that she was having an affair with her brother Alfonso. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Real Game of Thrones. Real Game of Thrones. <laughs> and so was she in it? Like Alfonso had been exiled at this point because Sancho's in charge of, of the Northern Kingdoms. Right. Uraka maybe having an affair with her brother, the other one, Alfonso, who knows. Sancho dies. 
So Alfonso has to be brought back to be put in charge of the United Kingdom. And Garcia was down in Badakhuth, <laughs> which is a it was a Muslim uh, taifa down right. in like, except it's, it's sort of like southwestern Spain. And he just was living the life like, you know, drinking Hummer and, you know, banging uh, in the, the harem or whatever. Right. Yeah. And he was he was out of out of contention. Engaging in that good slave trade. <laughs> <laughs> and so Alfonso came back in charge. Well, what happens to El Cid? El Cid is, you know, the 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 guy who helped Sancho and it even had like been the key guy in the big battle between Sancho and Alfonso right. and like defeated Alfonso's forces. Effectively the champion. Yeah. And know. Alfonso was pretty miffed about that what yeah <laughs> and then this isn't part of the song of el cid but the the lore uh or the history the deep lore the deep lore <laughs> is that el cid and the other uh like knights mm. forced sancho to swear an oath and this was the thing in the middle ages swear oaths you swore, oh yeah. no, no 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 but a specific kind of oath oh. there's a name for it but the oath was an oath to swear that he had not killed his brother so it's an oath it's basically <laughs> like we're not going to have a trial this um, is like a canon we don't style. have like you know forensics we don't have witnesses we're not going to do a trial and actually trials are a whole thing in this right we're just gonna have you swear an oath on the fucking bible that you did not kill your brother and that's then you can be the king and we all swear allegiance to you and alfonso did it but he was obviously butthurt about this uh <laughs> like how dare that i killed my brother he probably did right well <laughs> he probably fucking did most people that are very guilty in that sense tend or or or, or butthurt in that manner tend to be guilty so that later precipitated a falling out with el cid el cid was exiled uh and he had to like get his retainers together and this is where the poem starts the poem starts with the exile of el cid so he is pushed out he takes his retainers they go into like they leave uh castile and then they go into like the sort of the badlands around Saragossa, uh, like between Saragossa and Valencia. Mm. And they just kind of like they need money. Right. <laughs> that, that's the main thing. And so the first thing they do in the poem, and here's where we can talk about Jews because we love talking about Jews. Oh, buddy. Is they defraud some Jews. <laughs> Does it say this? Yes. <laughs> I need to read El, El Cid. Yeah, you're going to love when you yeah, read, I need this. To read this. This is really good. El Cid. Uh, he comes up with a plan, and the plan is we are going to take two chests. They're really nice looking chests. They're like got some red velvet and some gold studs on them, or red leather and gold studs. <laughs> they're really fancy looking. We're yeah. filmed with sand. <laughs> so really the heavy, old Indiana Jones. Really <laughs> heavy. We're going to lock them. Yeah. We're going to take them to these two Jews, and we say to the Jews, look, we need a loan of 600 silver pieces. <laughs> And in return, oh, actually, no, the, the, it's first, we need, El Cid, my lord, needs you to take these two chests of valuable stuff. Right. And you need to protect them from him. He can't afford to carry these around. He's on the move. He's like fighting people. Like, we just need to stash them away somewhere. And you're Jews, so you're good at stashing money, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so here's the fucking gold. Uh, you stash this for a year. And in return, and on the condition that you don't look at what's inside. <laughs> in return I love, I love ancient history because you can get away with all the best like old school like, I feel like either, the, either these Jews back then were dumber or like well there's nobody like I love or that's maybe part of the comedy of this whole thing I think it's because back in the day people just had never been exposed like those were all new tricks 
at some point well, in time, maybe, all, maybe these Jews all the like, old tricks no, used to be new no, tricks at some point. The Jews probably <laughs> figured no Christian is going to lie about that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no goy could possibly come up with a lie like that. And then we're they like, don't have the chutzpah. But <laughs> so he got his loan for 600 gold, uh, silver pieces off of off of this like. So he's like, fake stash his stuff and give me the treasure. money. Yeah, stash his stuff, give me the money. Okay. Gets the money. He's able to, like, feed and support his people. They That's win his collateral. A, they win a bunch of battles. They, like, take over a bunch of towns and butcher people. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, Muslims, Christians, whoever. Actually, yeah, it's mostly Muslims. Right, yeah. Um, He then... Let's see. So he has a bunch of adventures and, like... <laughs> And it's actually fairly confusing reading it because there's every single guy. I mean, I'll just read the lit. I'll just read some of the names of like some of his seconds in the book. Mm-hmm. There's uh, Minya Alvar Fanaz, Martin Al- Antolines, Muno uh, Gultios, Martin Munoz, Alvar Alvarez, Alvar Salvadores, Garcia Gar- Galia Garcia. Like they all have Alvar or Fanez or Munoz in their name, like all of them. Jesus. Um, yeah, that get confusing. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, we can just uh, we can just gloss over all that then. Yeah. Unfortunately, the best book on uh, El Cid I read, I read like a couple chapters of the free version online is by a, a scholar by the name of Menendez Pidal. Mm. Uh, he was a Spanish 20th century scholar. He lived to be about 100. Uh, oh, wow. He died, died in the 60s. Yeah. And he's got a book. I wasn't willing to pay sixty dollars to read it, uh, <laughs> but it, it was very good from what I was reading. So mm. uh, I think he goes in, in the more the uh, who all of these guys are, like the historicity of each of them. Gotcha. But so um, leaves you hanging with these crazy names, like the Bible. But the main so the Song of El Cid is divided into three songs, three cantars, and the main incident doesn't the. I guess kind of the the Cantars one and two are just a bunch of adventures mm. with killing Muslims and uh, cheating Jews and just like cool shit that everyone loves. Oh. He takes Valencia, uh, which is a you know the, it's on the Mediterranean coast, mm. uh, big town, and he then uh, he asks for Alfonso. He's sending Alfonso gifts to try to get back into like the good graces of the king, and uh, Alfonso's finally like, okay, fine. <laughs> okay, um, fine. And so one of the things El Cid asks for is, I uh, please like allow my uh, my wife and my daughters to like come and accompany me now that I have Valencia. And so Alfonso lets the wife and the daughters like leave the the nunnery or wherever they're at, and they come and they meet El Cid, and then he marries them off to two uh, counts, mm. and the counts seem like good guys. But the first scene of Kantar 3, there's a, a incident with a lion. And this lion, like, I don't know, creeps into the room. And Elsid's, like, sleeping. And the two sons-in-law puss out and run away. <laughs> all the other bros, all the other Fanyeses and Munozes and guys, yeah. like, are ready to, like, die for Elsid. El Cid awakes from his slumber and walks up to the lion and just like scares it off because he's that Chad. <laughs> <laughs> he scares it off. <laughs> and the two like traitors are humiliated by, or the two cowards are humiliated by this and everyone's bancing them. Like everyone's making fun of them. And El Cid tells everyone like, shut the fuck up. Like it was a lion. Like lions are scary. Like they're young men. Like, you know, not everyone's going to walk up to the lion the first time. Like it's, 
Like they're going to be, you know, they're Spaniards. They're very testy. <laughs> they're going to be humiliated about this. Like, let's just calm it with all the the, yeah. the, the remarks about these guys. Mm. Um, but they're still angry about it. So yeah, they they take the two girls who they're married to and they they leave to go. They ask for leave to go. They go. And on the journey at one night, they like they 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 rape the girls or Jesus. Well, yeah, I mean, they're allowed. They they have relations with them which is legal um but right. then they like beat the shit out of them and like, oh. leave them for yeah they like it's like a weird rape like beating and they leave, leave them tied up in the woods wait it was like a weird consensual sex that turned into a beating and then uh yes well i don't you know consensual sex is like not really a thing in the middle ages like there's no concept <laughs> of this so it's not really we say rape but like that's fair yeah it's it's, they t- it's either legal or it's not and this wasn't legal what happened wasn't legal so. right okay yeah <laughs> So they run away, and the girls are found. They're brought back. El Cid's pissed off. So he challenges. Um, he challenge. He goes to the king and says, "I demand like justice." And so this is where we get into sort of the third or the other um, theme, which is like law, right? And the final scene of the Song of El Cid, like uh, the the uh, Song of Roland, is a trial. Mm. And in the trial, so like the way it's done is back then it's done by trial by combat Mm. but i mean there is sort of like a there is a there are disputes and 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 mitigation that go on before that but ultimately it comes down to a trial by combat right which makes sense because from a social point of view i mean people nowadays are like trial by combat that's absurd and archaic but it isn't absurd or archaic it actually makes a lot of sense completely agree because (laughs) it allows and it's not really even about it's kind of like dueling it it's not even about like who's the better fighter it's more just about who's gonna puss out yeah and if you puss out then you lose so el cid uh they have the trial uh it's 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 mitigated by the king or, or adjudicated by the king and el cid's faction comes and the the two counts their their faction comes and the trial is mainly just Elsa demands back some stuff that he gave them. Like, I want those two swords back that I gave you guys. And they, they are adjudicated that he's right. So they have to relinquish the swords. But then he's like, okay. And also, <laughs> so like, I, demand, I demand satisfaction for what you did to my daughters, which was completely illegal. Right. And they, it turns into like a, a mudslinging contest, an insult contest between the two sides. And various people insult each other. Oh, boy. And so once you, you know, once that happens. That has well, to go to know, fight. Once the trash talk happens, then a fight has to happen. Yeah, that's, that is universal law across the books. <laughs> so they have the fight. In the final scenes, they have the fight. Three pairs fight. El Cid's champions all win in all three of the fights. And, and he's proven correct. <laughs> because he killed everybody else. Yeah. Which, but, I mean, still, he's still right. But I do, I do like reading this. I was just thinking about like Zog law and how comparing it with like how trial by combat works. Mm. And in Zog law or in, in Zog, Zog law in general, there is no it, lying is not illegal. Like being a shithead is not illegal. It is only it is the only place where lying is legal is under oath in court. Like that's the only piece mm. of law where where truth actually matters. And like the way that Jews have gotten around this in our court system is just by accumulation of, of information. Mm. So they'll just like throw a shit ton of information out there. And the judges nowadays are, there's no like process, no ability to like filter out the bullshit. 
and that's where trial by combat comes in. You can't come to a tr- to a to a court case where trial by combat is on the table and throw out a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> right. You can you have to say what is what is reasonable. So you can't just come in with a negotiating position. Negotiating positions are not real. Right. Like if you come in with a negotiating position, the other side is get okay, fine, we'll fight you. <laughs> we'll just we'll just stab you right here. Yeah. And so it works out in the long term. I mean, maybe yeah, yes, obviously there's gonna be cases where the wrong person wins because they they are the better fighter right even though they're like a complete traitor and scumbag that will happen but, but you can also uh, mitigate that but on the so but on the social level over time this will allow for the more moral and better and more useful people to yeah. build the, the people as a fighting organization right to emerge it will also encourage the people that carry truth to work out <laughs> and train you know it'll it'll encourage the people that, that are actually or to be a, friends with people who do also that you know because again you can you can you can dub a champion people always forget about this in duels and shit you can usually dub a champion my champion versus your champion and if my champion is a yoked skinhead and yours is like a soy boy civilization will write yeah, itself real quick win, yeah. yeah well civilization will write itself really quick <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? so um but yeah no so that's like that's you're completely so yeah that that's the the, the broad outlines of the yeah cantar de Miosid. which and then trial so trial by trial by combat then he wins at the end proven right yeah all that other fun stuff so it it ends in a in a romanticized fashion it's then. kind of like a law and order episode <laughs> god <laughs> <laughs> law and order 1099 <laughs> so okay so then but historically speaking though outside of the of the poetry of el Cid, um what do we know as far as like how did he die uh you know what were his actual accomplishments oh, against so the, he the yeah i don't the thing with the daughters in the trial i don't know if any of that's true mm. um i think that might just be the poem but it is known that el Cid did take Valencia and he built like his own little state there for a while. Uh, and he did at various times in his career, lead Christians and Muslims. Uh, and of course, you know, nowadays this will be interpreted as like, well, see, like diversity is right. Good. Yes. But it was totally, it not was that. totally not that. <laughs> no, that's not how that goes. <laughs> like I will take these hajis and I will lead them and, if I need, and I'll be fair and yeah, whatever. If but, I need some mercenaries, you know, that happen just, Bow to Allah. <laughs> Whatever. No, and the historical Sid, um, he did speak Arabic and he also... Well, yeah, it's an occupied and nation. He, he enjoyed, he was very fond of certain Arabic poems uh, from like the Middle Ages or from earlier Middle Ages, from like the time of like the rise of Islam and stuff. Well, I mean, you got to think about it. That was at the time, he would have been exposed to that as a, through a lens of that being the pinnacle of civilization at the time through the arabic lens right yeah. because it, it was it was the air it was it was what it was the arabic enlightenment period effectively right like the early arabic enlightenment renaissance whatever the hell you want to call it um and all the way out in the west obviously they would have said like wow this is the greatest thing here's all the greatest literature and poetry and art and tapestries and you know fashion and all this crazy shit that came out of this thing right um so he would definitely have viewed it or or have 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 had it presented to him as that being the highest pinnacle of civilization more so than than the bar the, probably what was viewed as the barbaric european you know fall of rome elements or whatever the hell yeah, there was, was there wasn't much um you know even at this time there wouldn't have been too much you would have had like latin literature of the roman era but that would have been almost incomprehensible to people i mean the latin was very 
classical Latin is very complicated and right. not something you're just going to casually pick up and read yeah. uh, as somebody speaking like, uh, you know, old Spanish. Right. So with that, you know, with that, and you're going to have basically your your focus being the the Mes- you know, Mesopotamia as being the, the well, height of civilization at the time. Arabia. Arabia, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> All Arabia. Al Arab, so the uh, that would definitely have been the pinnacle of civilization that he would have been presented with. Um, so naturally, he would have been reading their literature and looking at their again. We look at look at Spanish architecture. Well, he was, I mean, all the time. I mean, the kind of the reason for that is he was uh, able to lead them effectively as well as lead Christians. Well, right, yeah. So he because again, this is cross cultural uh, leader here yeah, <laughs> in yeah. his in his multi ethnic society. <laughs> I suppose I suppose we should all like be brushing up on our rap lyrics so we can effectively <laughs> lead the American people. <laughs> That's that was the problem with Rockwell is he never he didn't practice rap enough. And that was <laughs> when he was doing his negotiations with Malcolm X. <laughs> that was the big problem. Uh, so but and I uh, no but but so he um not not just with with so that he did influence set, he did set up a state at valencia which lasted yeah. a while his wife took over for a few years after his death but then uh basically like the christian side was kind of weak and and the muslims took it back over and that's where the the Marabitin came in and, this was post elson yeah yeah the, okay. the the almoravids uh like yusuf ibn tashfun that whole movement that empire we we're just talking about mm. from morocco came at the invitation of the degenerate lords of Spain, Muslim lords of Spain, and forcibly united them, uh, stripped them of all of their, a lot of their like tapestries and <laughs> gold and all of their ridiculous shit. They were they were taxing their people a lot to maintain their lifestyles. So basically, but they they were institutionalizing some form of austerity then. And, yeah, pretty and, much. Okay, like the 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 Marabits just like kicked all that out. But they and, but they did it on purpose in order to to make them ascetics as themselves, right? Is, is that yeah, well, they to were, make them they, effective soldiers. Yes. Well, yeah, but there was also I thought there was a cultural element too where the Tuaregs were a lot more ascetic. Or, yeah, or is that yeah. not necessarily and that was the case also, at the same time? Yeah, it was. They were more ascetic naturally because they come from the desert, right? And their religious movement was based on like a, a very hard line interpretation of islam i bet <laughs> <laughs> that's probably why they were called in too they're like all right look yeah. these guys are extremists and we need this yes. we need a hard course and, correction and they, now they did they did the the Marabits did like try to take valencia and elsa yep. had fought them and, and and fought them off but after he died like there wasn't really that power base in the on the um the, the mediterranean coast of spain by valencia anymore and so the christians couldn't really control yeah. it and even and the, at this the, time people tend to neglect the, the concept of this even in the middle ages but it is very true sea power sea power in the middle ages was immensely important even you know like people forget about it but even in ancient yeah, and times the, before the spaniards that, didn't really have a sea power at that point no not at all. they they only started the spaniards they were they had the upper hand in like the late 10 hundreds but then the the Muslims with the Almoravids and and then the next dynasty the uh, Almohadin started to you know, got control and, and were strong throughout the 1100s, and the the real turning point happened uh, in the early 1200s when the mm. Muslim, uh, the Christians finally like beat the Muslims and then like it was it was just a slow march down to Grenada mm. over the like course yeah years. for 200 yeah. years yeah which is a very long time to be fighting. Um, but that's also where we get the uh, the fantastic racial concept of blue bloods, uh, which is great for determining. Oh, right, because if you 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 touch their skin and it turns blue. That... Well, if, if you can see your if you can see your veins, if you can see the blue veins through your skin. Then you, you're a, a true Visigoth. Yeah, you're European enough to not be 
slaughtered <laughs> so you know other than that because if you were if you were too brown basically to see your veins then you were you were considered uh an arab or something so <laughs> yeah it what uh so to, to tie this all together this in a way was kind of like a proto crusade yeah uh in fact so we, the first crusade started in uh you know 1095 somewhere around right there, yeah. the pope urban the second proclaimed the first crusade yeah so that's very late in Elsid's life. But even before 1095, the popes had authorized Western knights to come and like campaign in Spain uh, with like the Christians to fight against the Muslims. Right. So already this was like becoming a thing in the life of Elsid where Frankish knights would come in and they had a sort of a bad reputation with the Spaniards because they didn't appreciate the local culture. <laughs> um, so they were, you're always better at being an imperialist when you know what the the natives are about right like you think of like the british in uh india in like yep. the, in 1900 say like they knew what they were dealing with they they had long experience in the country and they're good at, at managing it right uh whereas when you are just like the americans 2003 in iraq you have no fucking idea <laughs> you <have> no fucking <laughs> and idea. like all kinds of ridiculous abuses happen yeah bad shit went really down. bad super bad clash of cultures so that was kind really. of what was going on yeah. with these these frankish knights the spaniards like these people are savages and that would not be the only only time the French did this bullshit during the Crusade era of, of culture clashing. Another one was with Richard III and the Third Crusade mm-hmm. uh, with Philip. Uh, King well, Philip let's let's uh, let's talk about the uh, the other Crusades. Okay, so we'll we'll skip over a bit of that. So, like, I get the first Crusade happens. Uh, I uh, let's see here. Yeah, ten ninety five, ten ninety nine. They took Jerusalem. Right. Uh, mostly norman knights and, and french knights norman leaders. yeah it was a big french thing the french component that left a lot of what would happen what a lot of the chaos that ensued in the second crusade was i'm not trying to blame the french but their system structures that they left in place it's obviously not their fault it was literally the middle ages guys here like we can't like completely blame them but a lot of the french systems that they left in place and a lot of the leadership that they left down there that eventually bred into things like guy delusion who wasted the yeah. entire army of Jerusalem at the uh the Battle of the Horns of Hattin. Yeah. Uh which is like I even even in the Middle Ages, I don't even care. And I know this is this like is the I, one from from that movie. Yeah, they uh, iconicized this on, yeah, on yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of abuses that they did in that movie historically as far as like, you they know, they had a piece of the true cross and they were marching through the desert. Yeah, and they took it out. Well, and so, they were too arrogant to want water. That was real. That was that was the only basically the only the only real parts of the movie like like the whole, you know, sex stuff with Sibylla and all that other stuff that never happened. Like he, like Sibylla never cheated on on Guy de Luzon. Um but yes, he did march his army out to the middle of nowhere uh, and to the horns of Hattin, which if, if uh, well, uh, most of our Western. What, uh, what year was that? 1140? Uh, 11, 1137, maybe, I feel like. I want to say it was it was somewhere it was on. It, there was a three and a four and a seven somewhere around in those dates. <laughs> um, but it, it's in the 1100s for sure, uh, because they. It, it, it was I think it was the 1140s because it was later on because they you still had you still had the same players Guy and um, and Salahuddin uh, was were still fighting in the third crusade it was the same actors uh, you still the, the same actors at the fall of the second crusade were the same actors in the third crusade right effectively um, so uh, crap where was I uh, oh yeah so they, they they left all these these horrible people in place or whatever that eventually would uh, lead to to Guy marrying Sibylla 
uh, who who was actually the the throne holder of Jerusalem. Guy was not the, the throne holder. He married into that. Um, and her, her his only claim to the throne of Jerusalem was Sibylla. So later when she died, uh, after the Second Crusade, uh, it would remove his ability to claim the throne of Jerusalem, which caused a lot of problems in the Third Crusade uh, between all the different suitors. And again... I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this is Europeans being assholes and individualists and fighting each other. <laughs> we should be united against the enemy front. Uh, there was a lot of that happening in the Crusades. I mean, even even when the when the, the Muslims literally had an absolute advantage and were bearing down on the on the Christian Crusader states, they were still killing each other instead of uniting, which was well, they, a massive they problem. A, they had the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the County of Edessa, yeah, the the uh, Acre Tyre, uh, Antioch. Yeah, Principality of Antioch. Yeah. There's four or five states. Yeah, these were all like city-states. A lot of them had like individual operations too. A lot of... And like, um, there was a... Oh, t- 1187. Uh, where was... um Battle of Hattin. The guy who... there was They made him into a movie character too. Orlando Bloom played him, but it was totally fake. The way they portrayed the character of uh, Balian. Balian of what What the heck is it? Um, He was the guy who, who mounted the defenses of... um of jerusalem okay the second time during the end of the second crusade i uh, was when ba- saladin took jerusalem yeah when saladin took jerusalem after he had just after he defeated the army uh at at the horns of hatin although balian was at the battle of the horns of hatin and somehow survived and escaped back to jerusalem to mount the defense um there was like i think you probably count the number of people that survived that battle on like two hands <laughs> like saladin annihilated that army yeah um and then he because oh and then that's where he captured he captured uh renault de chatillon uh, and and the king of Jerusalem himself, they captured um, Guy de Lucien at that battle, and he offered he offered Guy iced rose water, mm-hmm. and uh, I think he straight up just cut off Renald's head because uh, <laughs> Renald like Renald uh, Renald actually did uh, capture what would uh, be Solomon's now called system. war crimes. Yeah, he actually did do war crimes uh, even when they had pieces like peace and treaties and whatnot. Uh, he had the fortress uh, of Karak. Which was right on, yeah. yeah it was big, m- massive, extremely imposing fortress. That's literally, for some reason, right on on the pilgrimage route from uh, Damascus to uh, Medina and, and Mecca. <laughs> so like, and and Renault's stupid uh, excuses after he was slaughtering civilians on almost a weekly basis, right? And Saladin is like, play, he 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 pleads to Guy. He's like, you've got to stop this, right? Oh, no, 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 it wasn't Guy at the time that was King of Jerusalem. It was, it was before Guy. It was um, uh. The, the guy who had leprosy at the age of 30-something, and he died. Uh, he fought a, a, a battle uh, when he was younger. What was his name? I'm guessing... Uh, I haven't read about the Crusades in a while, so... Yeah. Uh, Raymond, maybe? No. Uh, no, no. Oh, the first one. It was... Uh, anyway, he, he, was, he, was the, he was the 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 young... He was Sibylla's brother. Uh, the reason why uh, Guy was able to get to the throne. So, Guy married Sibylla, who was the sister of the king of Jerusalem at the time. Um, and I, I, it's, I'm drawing a blank of his name, but he... he um, no, no, he was he was uh, told to punish uh, Renault at the time, and Renault was like, well, because apparently all of the Kingdom of Jerusalem had had a treaty with uh, with Saladin not right. to not to fight or whatever and deal with all this nonsense. But Saladin Ren- was uh, he was based at Cairo at the time. Yeah, he was still based at Cairo, and he was what he was doing is he was trying to uh, solidify his power in Damascus 
um, and right. he was fighting, you know, with Seljuks and making uh, treaties with the Byzantines and everything else like that, and, and dealing with his Eastern Empire, right, and his empire building before he, which was, I don't know why the Crusaders didn't realize this. He's like, yeah, we'll just make a treaty with him while he's dealing, while he's completely surrounding us, right? Like the the, the German fear of Ein Kreisung totally happened to the Crusader kingdoms with Saladin. Um, yeah, it, so, took, it took the Muslims a while because after the First Crusade, they were like super. Uh, the Crusaders really caught the Muslims with their pants down. Yeah, for sure. The Muslims were disunited and weak. Yeah. And uh, but then you had it took it know. took a I mean it, Saladin's uh, sort of predecessor was uh, Nur ad Din. Yeah. And his predecessor was Zengi, and both these guys had their power base at Mosul mm-hmm. in northern Iraq, and then like they Saladin like because the Caliph at the time for most people don't realize like so when people think of Saladin they think of him as like the, the absolute big leader of all of Islam at the time and he wasn't the caliph was in Baghdad yeah but the caliph yeah. was I mean irrelevant at that point true I mean, he, he was a puppet than, figure he was like the pope well, well right he was like a pope or or the emperor of of the of the um uh, the HRE yeah right he was like a, he was like a holy roman empire or emperor effectively he was like a puppet figure you had to like kiss his hand and stuff but right, otherwise yeah. you could ignore him right but the point being is that Mosul was not the capital of Islam at the time, and neither was Cairo or Damascus, you know, respectively. Even though easily, 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 Salahuddin's empire of his own between Cairo and Damascus, and eventually became the entire Levant, was probably the strongest Islamic state at the time. Um, if, you know, at, yeah. it's across the, the board of it, as far as across the Islamic world, he probably had the strongest Islamic state. Um, so, anyway, so while there, uh, well. He, 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 uh, the king of Jerusalem um, has to punish Renault for the crimes against killing uh, Muslim uh, excesses. Yeah, e- extreme excesses. The one, the one that really pissed Saladin off is, is when there was he um, when he raided or Renault raided a caravan that was carrying uh, Saladin's sister on pilgrimage. Yeah, yeah, from Damascus to uh, to Mecca, and so he captured her and and took her her prisoner and all that other fun stuff, and so. Um, he was he demanded obviously her release and everything else like that um and so he had to like kind of baby slap Renault de Chatillon and nothing really happened so he never really got punished for all of his war crimes it was like a, kind of like a really like I don't know it's kind of like politics today where it's like no one really punishes anybody for anything and then it's, it's just like everybody just continues to build animosity and eventually it's going to build up into something horrible <laughs> right so that's basically what happened here so nothing really happened to renault and then until renault eventually became came under control or came under under um you know uh, fealty to Guy, who got the throne uh through marrying sibylla and then you know the other the other king died um and then Guy had to Guy had to go alleviate some force that uh um this was like it was like as soon as Guy took the throne, it was within the next couple of years they got into a serious war with Saladin. That's like war broke out almost immediately, um, and so he and Renault and all the knights of Jerusalem or whatever went off to uh, you know march off into the desert like a bunch of heroes or something to alleviate this city or something that was being besieged by Saladin, who was waiting for him and he was like following him through the desert right like the ghost like it, basically the desert's fox right just following him through the desert uh waiting for the, the crusaders to run out of water which they did obviously and on, and on and this is the most poetic doom i think of any european military crusading or, or, or fighting overseas these guys died on the footsteps or like the foothills of two dis, uh, two extinct volcanoes at the horns of Hattin. So uh-huh. they're they're extinct volcanoes. And so you can imagine this like 
Mordor kind of scenery, right? <laughs> With this like horde of Muslims surrounding you as you're all dying from heat stroke already. It's a little big horn. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. It's a it, and they got slaughtered. It was an absolute beatdown, right? So then you know the the leadership got captured. Um, uh, Balian of some province in the Crusader kingdoms went back to Jerusalem to to mount the defenses, um, and uh, uh, Saladin captured uh, Renault and. Um, and uh, Guy and kept Guy for a while as a pet, right? And uh, and killed Renault <laughs> as revenge. But he didn't go immediately to Jerusalem. So this is where the movie gets all belligerent, and this is why Hollywood should not be uh, consulted for for history, guys. Always read. Uh, so he after that he tried to go and clean up the other city states uh, before he went to Jerusalem. So he went on a, on a on a on a campaign to clean up the other places, and eventually ended up at Tyre. Uh, there was a siege of Tyre mm-hmm. uh, that he would like he he cleaned up basically. And we everything all remember else. that Tyre is that city that Alexander the Great built a land bridge to. <laughs> How raw is so that? So very convenient for Saladin mm-hmm. that it's not an island anymore. Right. So. You know how raw history is like that? The weird things that happen. So, yeah. So, Saladin had an easier time of getting to Tyre than anybody else uh, before Alexander did. So, um, but yeah. So, he went to siege this this city um, and it was... It was being... Uh, it, was, it was being defended by uh, some Frenchmen uh, and there was like a lot of the... Uh, you know, there's a lot of... I don't know. A lot of the remnant uh, crusaders that had you know, been pushed back from all the other places had kind of congealed here in Tyre and there's only really two strongholds left was Tyre and Jerusalem. Um, and so after uh, many long, you know, arduous you know days weeks and months of sieges or whatever he's like all right screw this i have bigger things to deal with uh because at this point in time jerusalem was finally at a point where he could he felt like he could siege it and and take it and so he left tyre and he went and took or he went to to take jerusalem and so that would come back to bite him in the ass because that's he left them a a bridgehead he did he left tyre alone which would be the landing port for richard the third when he came to do the third crusade along with guy de lucien and um conrad uh, this I think he's Conrad the Second, um, and another Frenchman. There's there's so many of them, <laughs> like, and so there was there was four, and then Philip, King Philip, Philip of, of France. France. Yeah, yeah right. so there's King Philip of France, there's Conrad, and there's Philip, and there's Guy, the main four players of of the of the European. Well, you're side. forgetting one, aren't you? Of of the European king side? of the Holy Roman Empire. Oh right, I keep forgetting. Well, he never even made it to the oh, Holy yeah. Land. <laughs> Which okay, so yeah, Frederick Barbarossa. Sorry, Frederick Barbarossa and his army uh, never made it out of Asia Minor and the Seljuk nonsense there. So we can get into that in a moment because that's the that is that is the saddest uh, and most wasteful death I think of any European historical leader. Is that it was like it's just the the most melancholy way of going out. He fell off his horse and it was it was actually not the he didn't actually drown uh so people uh well sorry let me get back into that so frederick barbarossa his, his death he when he was campaigning uh in the third crusade or when he started the third third crusade he so took was, the, he didn't take a boat he took the land route through right. turkey he was the only one of the three so at the beginning of the third crusade there were three major european kings that took up the oath to go crusade and that was richard the third of england uh, Philip the Second, I'm pretty sure of France, uh, and then uh, Frederick Barbarossa of Germany, or whatever it was at the time, Holy Roman Empire, however you want to call it. So he, uh, it wasn't really the H.R.E. was it at the time? It was 
was it? Yeah, right? maybe they didn't call it that, but yeah, it, it was. It effectively was. Yeah, so Germany. We'll say of the German states, of the German principalities and states. So, Frederick Barbarossa... Um, no, they did call it that at the time. It was the Roman Empire. Was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. So, um, Frederick Barbarossa uh, amasses effectively... Singularly, of the three armies, he amasses the largest of the three armies, individually. Um, and he marches from the German states all the way down to uh, Constantinople, right? And has no real resistance whatsoever on his march down there. Uh, it basically runs into no problem whatsoever, doesn't fight with anybody, doesn't screw up anything, everything. Byzantines take care of him. Well, the, well, the Byzantines is where he has the small problem. So the Byzantines are the problem consistently, and this is probably what leads up to the Fourth Crusade of them just getting sacked. Yeah. Because <clears throat> um, the Byzantine Empire at the time was just, I don't know, seemingly obscenely corrupt. Um, yeah, it was all downhill since Basil II's death in 1025. There you go. So, uh, anyway, so he met resistance at the gates of of of, um, of Constantinople, and there was like some kind of scuffle. There was like a little bit of persnickety behavior from the, yeah. from the Greeks, probably. Yeah, there was a little bit of usual scuffy. Thing. Yeah, there's some scuffy. There's a little bit of a little bit of maybe a little bit of pillaging. There's a little fighting. You know, nothing big, but eventually he convinced the Byzantines to let him across. Right. And so he went into Asia Minor uh, and he eventually ended up fighting uh, the Seljuk Turks that had been invading further and further into Anatolia for a while at this point. Right. Um, at during during this campaign here where he was fighting Turks or whatever, uh, he was crossing a river and it was a very short, a very shallow river. I think it was like only about a foot deep, uh, but it was in, he was in very heavy armor. He was wearing plate mail. Um, like full plate mail he was wearing plate then obviously chained beneath that right so he was like mm. he was wearing a lot of heavy armor but that wasn't the big deal the big deal was that and he wasn't suffering from heat stroke or anything it's just the armor was extremely hot and so and he was extremely hot so his body temperature was extremely high right he was just you know very hot so when he fell into the water the coolness of the water rushing over the armor in his body cooled him to such a degree that it actually caused him a heart attack is what they had determined would have been the cause of death wow interesting yeah so it wasn't actually that he drowned so that's a misconception he didn't actually drown he died of a heart attack from the contact of the cold water what was he in his 50s or 60s at the time uh yeah it was it was he was later in life so it but it and that was the thing he was the i think he was the eldest of the three philip was the, the youngest of the three kings that went out there um and barbarossa would have been the one who would have been the most successful of the battlefield most probably if he had actually made it to the the, the fucking place <laughs> you know he he had the greatest chance of actually doing some damage to the the islamic uh nations i mean and he did a number to the seljuk turks which helped the byzantines out for a little bit um which didn't really do much for much longer after that um but so on the other side of the continent you had um fred or you had richard the, the third well okay so I don't know, we wrapped up with the Second Crusade, basically, right? The Second Crusade was a failure. No? Well, the Second Crusade, yeah, the Second Crusade ended um, with uh, the loss of Jerusalem to... Su- well, that wasn't Southern. really the Second Crusade. The sec- I mean, well, that was yeah. like, that was inter-crusade crusading. Yeah. The Second Crusade was a was uh, another attempt to push through Anatolia and they got massacred. Yeah, it was just like, that was, yeah, there was just a, a waste as well. So that's... They well yeah okay so that was after the second crusade so then they had they had they had they had the second there they had the um they had still contain they still had control of Jerusalem after the second crusade though yeah it was in between the second and third crusade so they lost Jerusalem um 
But so I think we had left off with and during that at the end of that when they had lost um they had lost Jerusalem by the time that so Saladin went back, took Jerusalem from um from Balin, uh or Balian, and then left Tyre. And then he went off eastward to continue fighting other threats to his empire and left Tyre. So that's where that was left off. So the only okay, so the French and the English show up at Tyre to retake Jerusalem. Well, yeah, okay. So, well, before that, there's a lot of really cool stuff that leads up to that that plays out to to European history that that needs to. I think. That yeah, I, I read a book on this when I was in like high school uh, yeah. on the Third Crusade. It was by a journalist. Uh, it was fairly interesting, well written. The one thing I remember from it that probably wasn't true is that it was alleged that Richard the Lionheart and Philip II of France may have been gay lovers. Oh, come the fuck on. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is Which not I'm true. I'm willing to believe. No. On I, account of you know, British and French people. The but... saltiness has something else to do with it. Has, okay, okay. The okay. saltiness has to do with Philip's sister. So I know. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you know, there given, is given what a badass Philip uh, de Leon was, yeah. I can't believe that he was he was definitely not a poofter at all but philip was philip was a little bit of a pansy that was the big deal and Ah. and yeah that was a big that was a big deal for richard too that would that would haunt him throughout the crusade is is philip being a a panty waste and so (laughs) like uh so yeah anyway but um in the in the the other so the other two kings basically what happened for for unfortunate for Barbarossa is that he just basically died in Anatolia right he, he died of a heart attack from falling in the water and that sucks like what an absolute waste total unceremonious end to a great great ruler so anyway out back out west though the other two kings that took uh, up the the throne or the the oath uh, were the king of England uh, was Richard the third and Philip the uh, second which was uh, the king of king of France so they. They met, they met up after Richard. So Richard, um, Richard, when he took up the oath, he gathered his massive English army and marched on France, and that, <laughs> that was that was the start of the Third Crusade for the English. Is the first places they went to was Western France, right? Because England controlled what Aquitania at the time. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that he needed to tame down there or whatever, and so he went down there on a rampage and he earned his title, the Lion Heart, in France, killing French, not killing Arabs, as most people tend to think of. Oh, he's Richard the Lion heart from the crusade no he's richard the Lionheart from killing frogs so that's basically where that came from is that he went Based. yeah so you know i'm, I'm not gonna say i'm not gonna decide one or the other here but uh yes i mean that's pretty cool so they sliced france in half of the time what we would be considered today as the map of, of of modern france was basically sliced in half between english control and the left or the left and western part of the country and french you know, colloquial French domination and control. Yeah, but the kings of England these, were also kings of France, right? right the Normans right and all this other stuff. So the problem with Norman conquest, right, and Blah blah blah. So and speaking French and stuff. England and France was a fucking clusterfuck for you know quite some time. So, um, in the eastern half of of the of what is France though was considered uh, uh, to be ruled by the king of France, which was Philip II at the time. And so uh, Richard III went down to France and conquered a bunch of stuff, or you know, re re solidified his control over Western France, um, and. During, um, at, at they met at one of the ports there, uh, Philip and Richard. At first, at first they were bros, right? Like, this is so cool, you know. We're gonna go on crusade together. This is really awesome. We're we're all cool. As um, they're departing for a crusade, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, like uh, Marseille, maybe. And you know? the apparently there was um, there was chronicle uh, chroniclers. Uh, there was I think it was a Genoese chronicler uh, that wrote about the the meeting of these armies in southern France. He said that at, when those armies marched off, they could have conquered the world. 
and he's i think he's right if they had actually been unified and together and there had not been a persnippity fit between richard and philip that army could have actually easily i think destroyed saladin's resolve in like an early conflict um but that obviously is not what happened <laughs> at all uh so they they left off off uh to um to uh to to sail down uh into the mediterranean at that point and so um they when they you know they passed by uh you know spain they went through the straits of gibraltar and all the other fun stuff uh oh they say okay they sailed from atlantic france yeah yeah okay yeah so they sailed through there um and then i'm pretty sure they sailed through there because uh, it was they sailed out of out of um out of one of richard's ports yeah i'm pretty sure and so they they sailed out of there or whatever um and so uh, they they stopped over i forgot where they had stopped over i think it was somewhere it was corsica or sardinia or something along the some island in the mediterranean i think they had stopped over at uh and they were just camping out for a bit right at the time uh there was a dispute uh in uh in cyprus with a a guy named isaac i think you you know this this guy better than i do um he was a, supposedly the last uh byzantine emperor of cyprus I don't know if the I guess the Byzantine. I don't remember the, the Byzantine. The, was there a, a separate kingdom in Cyprus? I want to say Isaac. He Canenius, well, he, but, he, he, but, he rebelled. He rebelled. Okay. Yes, yeah, so it was Isaac. Some, Isaac C. It starts with a C. Cominius. I think it was Cominius or something. Anyways, Isaac something. So Isaac something. Uh, this this so called emperor. He's not actually an emperor. He was a so called emperor of of Byzant, uh You know, a so called emperor of Cyprus, and he fended off. He took over this. He took over Cyprus, and he fended off uh, a a, um, a Byzantine fleet or whatever, and he gained control of Cyprus. So, what's significant about that is that Richard had earlier sent a a treasure trove, and he had like his, his sister and a treasure trove and a bunch of stuff or whatever. Uh, he had stashed there, and I think it had something to do with the Templars. So. As you know, the Templars were a way for medieval um, knights and, and orders and whatnot to transfer transfer goods, right? Transfer money and, and, and finances from one place to the other quickly. Um, oh, so the Crusading orders also operated banks. Right. That's right. that's the whole thing about the Templars. The Templars secret, the whole big... Uh, the Templars were bankers, effectively. They were, And they were phenomenally good at it. They effectively invented... Um, what would have become this this cash fractional in reserve banking fraction? No, that was the Dutch, but <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, they they uh, they they did this uh, this thing anyway. So they they did this. You were able to cash in, say, gold in London, uh, and then you were able to pick up this type of treasure in you know uh, in 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 Antioch or whatever. Okay, yes, right? Isaac Kamenos of Cyprus. Kamenos, so, yes, of Cyprus. Yeah, so him. Um, anyway, so he stole uh, the goods. This this treasure trove that Richard had raised for his crusade. So Richard needed this money, obviously, to go crusading. This was like a big, a big fucking deal, right? Mm-hmm. So because back in the day, you couldn't just like, oh crap, I need to go back to the banks and borrow more money because the pirates got my thing off the coast of Africa. It didn't happen that way, right? Like if you didn't, if you lost your gold, you were fucking bankrupt. <laughs> like you were actually poor. So um, he lost his money and his sister uh, to this this guy Isaac on. Um, uh on on cyprus yeah, there's a lot of sister kidnapping going on yeah it's a big deal so but now now while this is happening right while the before before like while this is happening while cyprus is being taken over and richard's sister is being taken captive or whatever um philip 
the second and Richard get into a spat while they're on this island plotting or whatever for their crusade. And I don't know, they have some kind of issue. There's some kind of thing that happens. I forgot what, what the, the beef was, but they have this, some kind of beef or whatever. And what happens, what ends up happening is that Richard uh, rejects the marriage proposal for Philip's sister. And so Philip's butthurt that, that no, I, I won't even marry your sister, brah. Yeah, like so he's basically. Saying, I don't even want to bang your sister. Yeah, actually. Yeah, it w- it got to that point, <laughs> like, and it probably was that interaction because Richard was a chat. So, <laughs> like, and now to be fair though, this was probably one of the worst moves of any English king ever because this would have solidified english domination over all of france (laughs) like this is the one opportunity for this to happen like totally legally and legit Mm -hmm. through all through all legal avenues this would have been the point in time where all of france would have been consolidated under english rule avec ta sir yeah i'm no (laughs) so i'm sure i'm sure the french all love whatever the heck philip ii is believed legendarily to have said to turn richard off from marrying (laughs) this french this french princess um, but anyway, so they have the spat, and then so they sail. So they decide at that point to sail separately to the Holy Land to continue their crusade separately. Mm-hmm. They mutually, they're not going to be enemies, but they're just not going to cooperate effectively. Like you know, you mm-hmm. do you th- you do kind of like uh, like Patton and Montgomery in Sicily. Mm-hmm. Exactly that. You go destroy that. I'll go destroy this. <laughs> you know, you go have over there. So, um, but with way more autonomy, obviously. Uh, as we will see far later, which then pits Philip and Richard against each other long after the crusade, though. Okay. Yeah, which actually Philip Philip's betrayal is what draws Richard out of the crusade a bit early, um, but it still draws to a stalemate, and it technically. So how did he betray him? Well, we'll get to that, right? We'll get we'll get to how Philip does that. So that's um, well, and at this point they decide to sail separately to um, to the the Middle East. At so Philip gets there first because richard gets word that his sister and his entire treasure trove was taken captive on cyprus when the templar uh templar places had been basically captured by this guy that took over oh by isaac yeah Yeah, so isaac was also like a piece of shit tyrant like he was absolutely torturing his citizens and was just totally a piece of crap like yeah like typical late stage byzantine right like just absolute tyrant like everybody was starving everybody was just you know you know under a, such a, a a beaten downtrodden boot like it was bad right so he took over the templar places the orders you know did all the stuff was pe- pillaging his own peasants for whatever reason i don't know why um so he was he was a dick anyway so richard was like all right i'm gonna sail into the harbor here and he sails up and at the time isaac thought that he had a number superiority he did so militarily isaac had this the the numbers to be able to just outright defeat richard in open field so one would think, right, in a, in a normal combat situation. Um, and there's a really fun quip that Richard uh, tells a small clerk later uh, where he basically tells him to go fuck himself. And it's pretty great <laughs> uh, when, when the when the clerk. So there was like at, later on, there's a battle with Isaac and the uh, the the clerk is like the force is greater it'd be foolish you know to, to attack that you know like sir like that seems like a you know it seems like a wise man would say that's a that's an unwise decision to do that and and the and richard is like you mind your your bookkeeping boy and then let you know leave the war fighting to us <laughs> and like it's basically what he said it's just like you be a nerd elsewhere all right and leave this to men um and so isaac isaac actually never won a fight against richard at all uh it was a it was a a domination beatdown. So, um, uh, uh, Richard originally his first demands were give my sister back and give my money back, right? And I'll sail out of here. I will be on my way to the Holy Land. I will not fuck with your island or anything else like that. I will just take my money and my sister and be out, out, right? 
Easy. That's an easy request. Most people would say. Right. 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 And uh, especially for a man. Note, Isaac called himself an emperor. Okay. So for a man who calls himself an emperor, and this will come into play later, this should be an easy request. Give the man his ransom money back and his sister. Okay. His war chest and his sister, all he wants. Should have been easy. Isaac says, literally, go fuck yourself. Right. Literally, like in medieval terminology, whatever the equivalent would have been to go fuck yourself, he says that to Richard. That was like his response. I am mm-hmm. I am an emperor. I don't, he, he, And like on top of that, on right, top emperor of, of Cyprus. Right. But on top of that, he said, I'm an Cyprus, emperor. which I mean, it's, it's a, like what the size of Delaware. <laughs> it's a little bigger than that. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's a fucking small island. Right. And now it did. Ha- it did have good trade from three continents, right, which right. is important. But um, the point being is that he said, I'm an emperor. I don't even have to speak to the likes of such a, a, a king. He's like, a king is beneath me to even speak to. So he's also said, like, basically, fuck you to, to Richard. He's like, yeah. Richard's like, oh, okay, bro. And so Richard apparently has the shortest temper of any medieval king in all of Europe, right? Because every time anybody says fuck you to Richard in any point in time in this crusade, his immediate response is slaughter them. And he does. And so he jumps off the boats. He takes his he takes his knights. He's like, this is bullshit. And he literally he tells his men, he's like, follow me. And he just gets on the boat. They just go. They just get onto the shore. They all just rush ashore. They bulldoze into the city. They just the bull rush tactic. He blitzkrieg. So I think Richard the Third pioneers the blitzkrieg. All right. He does it so often in all of his campaigns throughout this where he just bull rushes into an area like randomly and it just takes the enemy by surprise and he slaughters just mass amounts of them and sends them fleeing into the hills so he knocks isaac's army that was garrisoned at the city right uh on, on southeast cyprus he you know, invades the city What's takes it? the city i forgot what the city is called maybe uh maybe i'm not sure it's it's very it's a you want well, you i'm sure you can look up on a map real quick no, it's a very prominent city um uh, it, it was very, it was very important. It was a ma- it was a very important port city that he invaded, uh, which get, got him a lot of the resources that he needed to continue his his his. Or maybe crusade. Paphos. Uh, Does that sound familiar? Mm-mm. No, I, I can't recall. No, it's 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 like the south south, not not too far southeast, like south central east. That makes maybe sense. Limassol. That's it. That's it. Or Limassol. Limassos it's, in Greek, yeah. Yeah, it's Limassol. So Limassol was the city that he invaded. Uh, and that was a massive uh, port city that brought in goods, as I said, from three different continents, right? From Europe, from Asia, from Africa. Um, so it was rich as all hell. And he he kept it intact. He didn't destroy the port, which was we'll get to that as, again, part of these campaigns later about destroying ports and some of the worst damage probably to historical cities in the in almost any other war before this. This was an, like, The Third Crusade was one of the most destructive wars in the Levant ever. Like, this was bad. Um so he didn't destroy Limassol, and he was able to utilize the port to continue to gather trade resources, right, to fuel his stuff. So he honestly, he was at this point, he captured his war chest back. He got his sister. I think it was, I think it was what he, I think he got his stuff back, uh, basically. But there was still resistance from Isaac, uh, and he was kind of willing to to do this thing where he's like, okay, cool, whatever. Um, or he, or you know, sorry, he did he did another he did another battle first with Isaac where he did uh, he did the thing where the, the the clerk was like oh you know there's too many forces sir or whatever and because they snuck up on him at night but he used he used surprise attack and he destroyed the the force at this fortress that was Isaac's and then he sent he sent Isaac according who to, would attack at four in the morning right exactly and then Isaac ran fleeing literally naked into the night uh, away to his fortress in the eastern part of Cyprus and so apparently there was like a I don't know like a truce called or something uh, and Richard married somebody on the island 
uh, that I can't remember. There was some kind of political marriage he was doing with this person or whatever. Uh, and and Isaac actually came to the wedding and he was like, oh, I'm begging forgiveness. I'm sorry. You know, I didn't mean to like, you know, be a dick and blah, blah, blah. And like, <laughs> and he said, I'm so sorry. He's like groveling. And Richard, in his infinite wisdom, forgave him or whatever. Right? He's like, okay, I'm sorry. So later that night, dude literally leaves the wedding party to go betray Richard by raising an army in another you know, city. This is, why, <laughs> this is why the Arabs say, I feel like I brought up this quote before, but it mm. takes takes two Jews to cheat a Greek. <laughs> and two Greeks to cheat an Armenian. <laughs> so he's dealing with a level two yeah. cheapskate here, it's, and it's a pretty serious cheapskate. Like, and it, this is not the last time that he cheats him. This is like he does. He gets like he gets away with this a few times. So he goes and he um he he goes and steals away and he raises an army and like Richard's like oh my god, and so he goes and he raises his army but okay so he raises his army at this point now with Guy de Lucien. Guy de Lucien had just left the uh, siege of Acre at the time so Acre um, was at this point in time under siege by Saladin mm-hmm. um, on the coast of Palestine right yeah yeah, yeah. so Acre's under siege uh, it, it's I think it was in the second year of its siege at this point in time when Guy uh, leaves because um, he had uh, I think he had he had he had fled before because he had been pardoned by um by Saladin and Saladin made him take an oath or whatever, make a promise that he would never. Yeah, Saladin. Raise Saladin was was a really uh, <laughs> I love chivalrous him. guy. Like that yeah. that reputation is earned. Yeah, uh, because he used to read like like El Cid. Mm. He read all these uh, old Arabic poems about the the pre-Islamic time, which was like sort of the in, like the feudal age of Arabia, yeah. like heroic knights and and fighting and and generosity to your enemies and and all this stuff. And, yeah. and Saladin was really into it, even though he was a Kurd and not an arab yeah and but and and he then became and uh, even though it was totally inappropriate to the time that he was living in he insisted <laughs> on acting like somebody from hundreds of years before when that sort of behavior was like more normal i think taking over or, or get, being given control of egypt when his father died i think that's a really important or was his father it wasn't it wasn't his, his uncle or Dean was uh his mentor yeah right right the guy that basically adopted him effectively yeah. so yeah when he took over egypt or whatever i'd imagine that had a massive role in his his having to fill this this amazing i mean he's like dude you're in control I mean, of it Cairo. is sort of a power move because it it does people really respect that well because i mean even i i dude i, I no people one are like wow our king he I think he he's respect baskets to the enemy. It's, well, uh, or even more than that, we'll get into some of the really cool details of this. But like, but I I admire him. I think he's one of the greatest, the, one of the greatest heroes of the Middle Ages. I think you know, as far as like a a, a battlefield hero is concerned. I mean, he actually is a good, a, you know, a good general. Like the man, you know, he did not give a flying fuck about the well-being of his men because <laughs> that was but it's a different mentality right totally different culture and how that works um compared yeah to he Europe. also had you know hordes he did so have hordes more you know but all that's that's like that's that's a typical that's a typicality of all asiatic uh warfare yes, right yeah. <laughs> send in the hordes right um so it's also yeah it's also easier when your supply of troops doesn't come from you know europe right yeah right. tiny little like, place way way far away right right yeah like that it was comes a problem like, always for the crusaders was finding yeah. men to fight right bringing in men and, and, arms and then and, you know not being acclimatized as in the case of barbarossa right or you know just not just that like we got diseases and you know there's there's food problems now this was a big thing about about richard taking cyprus right so richard richard got fed up with 
Isaac being a piece of shit and he chased him down to his last stronghold or whatever and he's like okay this is how it's gonna be so he got uh, so Guy de Luzion came over and pledged his allegiance to Richard he's just like because at this point in time Tyre was under control um, by Conrad right so Conrad had control of Tyre and he basically was being a Frenchman like no this is a my castle and a, no one can come into is my Con- castle Conrad a vassal of Philip or is he like an independent independent uh-huh. so Conrad is a is a crusader king uh, and he has control of Tyre entirely and all of the knights that evacuated Jerusalem at the fall of Jerusalem. When Saladin took Jerusalem, everybody that evacuated there evacuated the Tyre. Yeah, right. So he had a massive population. He had a working port city. You know what I mean? Like he had a stronghold. It really was a stronghold. Um, so he could tell people to fuck off because, you know, like, what are they going to do? Siege him? <laughs> you know, it's not going to it's not going to work out well for you. He had a lot of he had a lot of resources going for him. Um, and it's what he told Guy. He literally told Guy to fuck off. So Guy, Guy was like, he came, Guy tried to go back to, uh, when he when he was exiled by Saladin, he came back to Tyre and tried to march up in the city and he's like, I am the king of Jerusalem. And then, you know, Conrad's like, no. And told him to fuck off. And Guy's like, well, God damn it. And so Guy somehow magically goes into the fucking desert like a madman and then raises like an army of like some 9,000 people or whatever and a bunch of knights. Like, like just, Hachis or just... No, just like people that were like loyal to the old Jerusalem uh-huh. uh, lineages or whatever, you know, or, but the thing is, or, or they were also loyal to Sibylla's line because she was at this point in time, I think, still alive or she had just died. Um, and then, because what happened is that when Sibylla dies, uh, Conrad sees that opportunity and marries Sibylla's sister to then have the technical legitimate heir or being the technical legitimate heir to the throne of Jerusalem. Um, so then right. he supplants Guy. Yeah, yeah okay. right. Yeah. So he supplants Guy. In fact, legally he supplants Guy, which eventually this will play into Richard recognizing one over the other. Orig- orig- like, r- initially, Richard recognizes Guy's authority as king of Jerusalem uh, when Guy first comes to him. So Guy raises this army and he goes and he takes Acre and Saladin's like, God fucking damn it. I literally just told you to get the hell out of here. Right. Like this is bullshit. So he realizes that his chivalry bit him in the ass. And so Guy goes and takes his place or whatever. Uh, and then Saladin's sieging the shit out of it. So anyway, Guy leaves uh, or however the hell that goes. I forgot who's in charge of that. So Guy leaves and takes a fleet, a small fleet to Cyprus uh, and finds Richard there. And he's like, hey, Richard, I pledge my 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 fealty to you, great king of England or whatever the hell else. Right. Because whatever. I think I think um, I think he originally was from Aquitaine or something. OK, I'm not sure. So I think it, technically he was supposed to f- pledge fealty to Richard anyway. Um, anyway, Richard was superior to him in lineage. So he pledges fealty to Richard. And so Richard uses and he's pleading with Richard. Hey, come with me to alleviate the siege of Acre. Right. Like, I, you know, all of your guys are here. Right. Please come do this shit. Whatever. Um, and he's like, well, no, I got to deal with this crap on Cyprus because this guy's a fucking dickhead, right? So he goes and he, he uses Guy and they use like a pincer move around the east point of Cyprus to destroy all of Isaac's fleet, right, along the port cities. Mm-hmm. And they do like a burning raid on the north side. And they, so they pincer move up there and they finally capture Isaac at like the final fortress at the east side. His entire army surrounded, everything's surrounded, whatever the hell else. And Isaac, uh, apparently, I don't know it's, it's, I don't know if it's according to legend or if there's actual fact. But uh, apparently Isaac had been imprisoned by the Byzantines, uh, by the other Byzantines at some point in time before he before he took control of Cyprus by force. Um, he was imprisoned by the other Byzantines or whatever, put in iron shackles. And apparently he had developed a like neurological phobia to being put in iron shackles to the point where it turned him into an absolute tyrant piece of shit or something. So this guy was a lunatic, right? Absolute loon needed to be institutionalized probably. Yeah. So 
uh, when he was captured, he was like pleading on the ground with Richard. Finally, he was just like, please, just whatever you do, do not put me back in iron chains. I swear to God, like I will, you know, like basically he's like, I'll suck your dick, right? Like, don't, <laughs> like, please don't put me in the iron chains, do whatever. And so Richard's like, okay, emperor. So you're too good for iron chains, right? Because, and then this is the thing, it's like, if, you know, this is the whole deal with, with Isaac is that he kept saying he's an emperor and he's too good for everything, right? So... He's like, you're too good for iron chains. That's fine. I will, I will have, you know, this this alternative crafted. And so Richard literally had silver chains, like shackles, made for him. And they still put him in the same dungeon. He's just in, <laughs> just in silver shackles. So they locked his ass up, much to the man's discredit. Uh, and yeah, he, um, I think that's where he perished. <laughs> I don't think he ever got out of there. Uh, so they would locked him okay, up in a so dungeon. Okay, so did did Richard the Lionheart take Jerusalem though? Okay, so yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Now getting that's the whole damn point, right? Right. You're supposed to take Jerusalem. Right. That's right. And so this is the the, the, the problem. Deus Levolt and, and yeah, Deus Volt, right? But Richard and this was a point about the whole Third Crusade is that Richard kept delaying this over and over and over again, which is eventually. Over the time, the longer he waits to do this, the more Saladin's building up his forces in his empire, right? The more he's able to, to solidify uh, the hinge, uh, utilizing the ports of Jaffa and others to hinge um, Syria and Egypt, yeah, right? right? Uh, and and again, uh, to there was another port north of Jaffa that was used to uh, uh, to supply jerusalem i forgot what it's i forgot which one it was it wasn't haifa it was another i at one point memorized the cities on the levantine coast yeah there's uh, a there was a few there's a it wasn't um it was it was the one north of jaffa and i can't remember what it was um but that that feeds that was the one that fed directly into jerusalem um but all these were under saladin's control so all trade uh at, at all that stuff that was at the edge of the the silk road and everything else coming out of the east and the orient and everything else was coming into salahuddin's empire and he was making bukus of money he was beyond rich at this point um and maybe caesarea caesarea haifa no these are all modern names fuck this no no what's yeah there's one there's a ashkelon maybe i think it was ashkelon yeah um on this stupid Google map, it's written as Ashdod, which is probably some Hebrew <laughs> Ashdod. I think they mean Ashkelon. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was the one that fed in directly into Jerusalem, I'm pretty sure is the direct port to that. But south of that was Jaffa, which was the the port that was used to hinge Syria and Egypt as a, as a, a, you know, a, an in-between. Um, so after, after Richard and Guy get done dealing with Cyprus, now is time to move on to Salahuddin, right? Now we get into the big the big deal here. So he goes off uh, and he goes to, I'm pretty sure he goes to Tyre first. I think it was his original, or I can't remember if he went to Acre or he went to Tyre first, one way or the other. He also gets told to fuck off, I think, by Conrad um, because Conrad's mad and salty that Richard um, recognizes Guy's uh, claim to the throne mm-hmm, of Jerusalem. Right. So... Eventually they go though, and they do actually break out of the siege of Tyre. Like Richard does help alleviate the siege of Tyre, uh, or not the siege of Tyre, the siege of Acre, um, and they they knock out the Muslims there, and they start winning victories against Saladin. Right, so they start doing this hop around thing and, and all fighting all up and long down the the, the coast, um, and alleviating stuff. So there's a bunch of drama then that unfolds again as per usual. So Philip apparently backs Conrad. Right, Philip has apparently made his way into the into the Middle East, and he backs Conrad's claim to the throne. Naturally, right, um, and so obviously that gives Conrad no reason to back down from his claim to the throne, even though 
I don't know, there's there's supposedly a seniority element that Richard's Richard's backing of Guy's claim is supposedly supposed to take seniority over Philip's backing of Conrad's claim. It's some nonsense, right? It's it's a bunch of it's a bunch of medieval politics. So there's a whole web of nonsense that's going on with the Crusaders at the time and um this the, this was actually planned or not totally planned but foreseen by Salahuddin when he released uh Guy from imprisonment thinking that because Guy would go back and try to to play politics for his his claim to the throne or whatever that he would actually sow discord amongst the crusader kings uh-huh right and it actually worked um to to his brilliance like Salahuddin is a brilliant tactician absolutely but so is Richard um and so Later on, Richard uh, eventually fights Saladin to a stalemate. They don't actually win. Uh, they, he doesn't. He never actually takes Jerusalem, despite the fact that Saladin actually had to evacuate Jerusalem at one point in time, at the very end there. Um, so it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was a siege at Tyre that they had. I don't think I'm getting my sieges mixed up here. I'm sure it was Tyre where they had. Uh, no, which one was it? Where they had uh, they had to siege the. Um, it was probably Acker. It was Acker, right? So Acker, Acker was, Acker was the the place where he kind of started. Like Philip and Richard had to had to besiege Acker. Yeah, they had to court they coordinate together to do this or whatever. But eventually, Philip does leave uh, from Acker. So, um, but anyway, so yeah, so Acker was basically the cool thing about the siege of Acker is that Acker was like the city itself was held by the Muslims, and then outside of that was this the Crusaders that had entrenched themselves and a siege works around the city around the 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 you know like there's like a it's kind of like on, a, on an island kind of not really it's like at the edge of the peninsula you know what mm-hmm. i mean so yeah. from sea to sea and it actually eventually stretches to two miles is a two mile entrenchment that the the crusaders had dug in here and we're talking about the medieval ages here guys like a two yeah. literally a two mile trench system so don't think world war one was the only time you saw horrible trench warfare like the middle ages saw a lot of trench warfare um like quite a lot and it was brutal because we're talking about the middle ages here so like catapults and crossbows and bows and arrows and stuff in trenches it's kind of an interesting scenario to think about actually uh with you know smoke and cannons and well actually that was before cannons at that yeah. point too so you didn't even have cannons you just had catapults you had catapults you had trebuchets siege engines uh you know fire and all kinds of horrible things you shooting from one side trenches closer and closer to the yeah. walls and stuff yeah yeah and like people are pouring hot you know liquids and shit down on you it's, it's, it's like a very horrible place dysentery diseases it's the middle ages man like you didn't have medical technology like this was bad times like this was brutal warfare so and this was and this was going on back to back so the crusaders had built trenches facing the city of acre and facing away from it to protect their their rear which was brilliant because that allowed uh well that allowed them to not be taken over but when salahuddin tried to come in to bring um uh, uh reinforcements in he couldn't he literally could not get to the city um he had tried to do uh, some maneuvers with a uh, relief force from the navy but it failed uh and so the, the latin forces which is what they call them basically was you know, yeah latin Latins. means all yeah all white people so, we're all latins right yeah so the latin the latin navy uh was able to defend basically the uh it's a cricket Oh. so yeah the, the latin navy was able it's to fall crickets like creep in all the time oh gotcha okay so yeah uh well the latin navy uh was able to um basically maintain 
the blockade of the city uh, and and the ability to resupply the line of like that strip of of, def- of, of trenches that yeah. the defenders had and so uh richard and philip were able to get in there they coordinated a bit and they fought for quite some time in there and they were able to pretty much bring it down to the point where no one could you know, there's there was no state. Like they, so they, they did they take the city. They did, yeah. So Richard eventually knew that they were going to starve out, but only after Philip decided to bitch out, and so Philip, um, like he he left and he went off and did other things in other cities or whatever. But eventually he, but he he wanted to leave, like because after this after this is only Richard. It's only Richard versus Solid, and after this point, right? Um, because Philip wanted to leave and he left and did some other stuff or whatever. But he pleaded for he pleaded with Richard, please let me go, right? Like, let me like let me let me go back. Let me, relinquish me of my of my duties and let me go back to France. And Richard said, okay, under the stipulation that you don't fuck with my lands in Europe. And Philip's like, okay. And so he apparently does, and he leaves back to Europe with Dakar, right? Dakar, me, me, me. So he leaves back to Europe with five ships, two of which were borrowed from Richard because Philip had destroyed his army. And so uh, Philip left, and that left Richard basically alone to not have to deal with a contender, you know, like another another chef to spoil the broth, right? Yeah. As far as planning was concerned, uh, so he was left to in charge with the the army and everything else like that. And so eventually, he did break the siege of Acre. Um, because something, some like there was a, a an issue that happened where the Muslim army was running out of supplies and everything else like that, and they sent a um, I think they sent a they sent an emissary out, and Richard said basically fuck off, uh, and then they were like they made one last desperate attempt to break out of Acre. There was like this this big push, and then Richard decimated it and chased them back through the open gates or something like that, uh, and totally took the city. So okay, the, so yeah. then he had to cut a deal with Saladin. No, no, presumably. Saladin. Apparently, at this point, there was something. Something at this point in time screwed them up royally because I think Saladin at that point broke. He left. He had. He broke the siege himself. He broke out. At that point, he had lost Acre. Um. Oh yeah, there was. It was the ship. That was the thing. Sorry. So there was one last desperate attempt that Saladin tried, which was to send a giant supply ship to the actual city of Acre itself, which was being besieged. Right to break mm-hmm. through the um, to break through the uh blockade yeah the blockade and so richard's out there uh with the navy or whatever uh and he scolds it like there was it was apparently hiding in the mist apparently according to history this giant ship was like hiding in the mist right like getting ready to like use i guess the morning mists to sail past the blockade right and get into the city and drop off a, a garrison large enough with enough supplies to actually allow the city to hold out to what would be presumed to be another month which would have been significant honestly yeah. um so unfortunately they get spotted right <laughs> like and they're like oh shit and they try to run and so they were gonna let it go the english navy was gonna let it go and richard starts scolding his his sailors he's like are you serious right now like you guys took an oath to god and all this other stuff to come down here and do crusading and blah 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 whatever and your you know your sloth and your laziness from fighting weaker foes over the past few months in cyprus and france and everything else has caused you to be completely complacent or whatever you get out there and you you know this is un- unacceptable and apparently his men were so embarrassed and they're like oh god they got after it and they went and they sunk the supply ship and upon hearing this saladin said i have lost acre and so that was basically the end of it so they were they were going to be starved out and then they had the last ditch effort so yay one for christendom right and yeah like battle one the first the first the first real encounter yeah the first real encounter between richard and saladin was a crusader victory um so yeah 
and there would continue to be quite a number of these. Um, and so after after Richard took um, Acre and Philip left and all this other stuff, they started marching down um, down the coast and all this other stuff, taking things. And so they, they had a very specific formation uh, that they were utilizing when they were marching on the coast. Now, a lot of other cities at this point in time, like some minor coastal cities, had been gone ahead and raised uh, by Saladin. He started just tearing cities to the ground, mm-hmm. uh, trying to deprive. He realized what a massive force he was dealing with. And again, we discussed earlier that Saladin's empire is massive. And so he did have to deal with you know threats outside of that as well. So he was diverting resources, manpower, and everything else like that, his attention to other fronts that he was dealing with at the time. Right, all these other Arabs are trying to stab him in the back as he's pursuing his glorious jihad. Literally that, though. And, then, <laughs> and that's, 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 that's a massive problem throughout the whole of it, right? So, um, Salahuddin and his, it is his glorious jihad, right? So, and, uh, Richard's crusade. So Richard is, uh, is, is at this one point in time, there's a massive battle that happens between Salahuddin and Richard. And it's like this, this major engagement where Richard has, um, Richard has a supply train. He's, he's marching on the coast and he's gotten his, his army as close to the sea as possible to protect his flank, like his right flank. And he's marching in column like in total sequence, right? Mm-hmm. And he has the Hospitallers, I think it was in the back, and then you have um, his Templars and his other uh, his other English cavalry in the front, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this long train. So on the on the further on the closest side of the coast, you had the it was uh, you had like a line of wagon trains and all the supplies, and then you had all like all the the, the columns and lines of crossbow and archers, uh, and then you had heavy cavalry as a giant lineup, mm-hmm. right? Of your all of your knights and your big guys, and then you had on the outside you had a wall basically of heavy infantry, is how he had this set up. Okay, right, because then you can you can deploy the cavalry out from among the infantry to like counter-strike anything and right yeah. so you know makes sense right? yeah so he had this and that's and he marched them in this long column it must have been a very long column because they had to use messengers to get from one side to the other of it right so they, i mean you had i think he had a force of somewhere around eleven thousand men i think it was um so you know pretty decently long column you know yeah. kind of thing anyway so he's marching on the thing and saladin has a force of about twenty-five thousand men right or probably more honestly um, so he's they greatly outnumber Richard's forces and they're like kind of gang stalking him right <laughs> As they march through the desert and shit or along well, you know, the coast you know the Muslims at this time uh, I don't know if the Crusaders did this but the Muslims by this time had messenger pigeons oh I'm sure of it yeah, yeah. and so like you could communicate like Damascus to Cairo in like hours mm. I mean obviously you know wings of your army you couldn't really do that but they right. had the ability to like it's, across strategic dis- distances like yeah. send messages way faster than a person you also have flags and other types of yeah. messages systems they had all kinds of different ways of doing it but yeah so they were like gang stalking them right and they were like going through the, there was like there was like hills and forest wherever the heck they were I guess they might have been I don't know oh Le- Lebanon that's what Ma- I was Ma- thinking cypress trees that's what know? I was thinking it, was, it had to be Lebanon was the only place that they were in because um, I think they were I think they were near Beirut because I know Richard eventually takes Beirut um, so uh, they're, they're marching down, and what Saladin does is that he sends a contingent. I hate using this word because it's the most ridiculous thing. It's like half his army. It's like ten thousand men. <laughs> he sends a contingent of his cavalry, which is literally ten thousand cavalry. Right? He sends spewing out of the countryside at at Richard's forces, and just like just slams against the 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 wall of infantry. Right? And mostly hitting him to the to the south or 
what would be their north because they're marching south, right? So, oh, like, so the rear guard. Their rear. The rear guard got hit. The hospital rear guard got hit heaviest by this wave of, you know, cavalry just like pressing down upon them like a, you know, like a. Just... Why didn't the uh, Arabs just, you know, do the traditional thing and like sneak around and like shoot arrows at them for like all day? I mean, that, I'm sure, were they not doing that? That, well, because now they had done that. That was actually what got uh, Guy de Lucien's army uh, harassed. Uh, by Saladin did do that uh, before the Battle of Hattin. Because like a, an Arab uh, horseman against a crusader is, uh, you know, not going to go well right in a, in a in a man-to-man fight but they didn't for whatever reason he didn't use he didn't use us uh, like you know horse archers or anything else for that um i mean they were fairly heavily armored but right. not not as much as the crusaders right ever but they did like white people this is like our thing <laughs> throughout man. history is like we love our equipment it's true like people will go, random yeah. aside but people will like go for runs nowadays and they'll like spend hundreds of dollars on like shirts and like watches and shoes and just like rain gear we're fucking geardos geardos <laughs> no it's true and then we were always geared up again that's unfortunate we killed uh frederick barbarossa uh <laughs> like uh you know so we you know but they they had they had the ability to probably withstand it um but at the same time i think the only reason why Saladin decided to use that tactic against Guy uh at the battle of um at uh God, I can't believe I forgot. Hatin. Anyway, the Battle of Hatin. The reason why he used that tactic is because they had already been worn down by the elements. And Saladin was known for using this tactic of allowing his enemies, because he knew the Europeans were, again, you know, we're not we're not desert people, right? He knows that we're going to get fatigued easily. And he uses that tactic quite yeah. often. Oh, it's fucking hot, bro. Yeah, it literally, he knows that. He knows that about us. He's like, yeah, these white boys are about to get burnt, right? <laughs> and so he understands that that's a massive thing. And he utilized that tactic against Guy. And then when they were worn down by the heat, he sent in his archers. And he was thinking the same thing was happening to Richard's army. He said so he'd maul them up a little bit with the cavalry and then like shoot them down when they're like their formation's broken up. And I, I, they're I, exhausted. I don't know what his his intentions were after this because it never got around to that <laughs> uh the way this happened is so like i think what well, i'm sure he was trying to just i think he was just trying to like make a decisive victory by sending in ten thousand cavalry and sweeping them right like an exhausted army that had been marching all day and that's what he waited for he waited till they were marching in the heat of the day uh and then he sent down the cavalry and i think what he expected was that he was just going to sweep them out um and that didn't happen that way so the the infantry held um and they were fighting, you know, brutally on the ground or whatever. And then at some point in time, some of the infantry broke ranks instead of defending. And they went on the offensive and started breaking into the the um, the Arab lines. And that started a chain reaction. All the infantry along the line started going after the Arab. They started just like, I don't know how. They just like started, you know, tearing at it and just started aggressively going into the enemy ranks. And so they started busting through it. And at almost, almost with and i think they said without order the cavalry charged through the ranks of the infantry into the lines of the enemy or whatever and then pushed them all the way back into the forests and they routed saladin's army uh-huh and he was like how is this possible that so small a few men or whatever are able to drive back so many you know he had like all these crazy this philosophical is, ruminations this about is the, it the battle of Ar- arsuf i'm thinking is that yeah probably is there a diagram you found for it no i just yeah yeah. Now I just pulled up the Wikipedia article on Richard Lionheart. Uh, oh, yeah. The, <laughs> the first thing here 
under King subsection King and Crusader, number one thing, coronation and anti-Jewish violence. <laughs> Tradition barred all Jews and women from the from the coronation, but some Jewish <laughs> leaders arrived to present gifts for the king. According to Ralph of Dicheto, Richard's courtiers stripped and flogged the Jews and flung them out of court. <laughs> he barred women too from the court. <laughs> the hell? When a rumor spread that Richard had ordered all Jews to be killed, the people of London attacked the Jewish population. <laughs> 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 Many Jewish homes were destroyed by arsonists, and several Jews were forcibly converted. <laughs> wow. Holy shit. <laughs> Uh, some claimed sanctuary in the Tower of London. Uh, among those killed was blah, blah, blah. Uh, oy vey. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Richard the Lionheart indeed. So yeah. Scra- scratch, a, scratch a white man. Find an anti-Semite. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So uh, Richard was clearly based as fuck. Um, and it showed in a lot of these battles, too. He's he's hardcore and was not afraid. He wasn't some prissy little king like this guy was actually like a straight he up earned the title yeah he is a badass he honestly he's not hyped up i think enough in in uh our our views of european history this guy uh was he was a true king too he actually fought on the ground with his troops and we're this was a big deal <laughs> this a lot it is a massive deal um so i uh, this was this was way later though this was at the battle of jaffa we'll get we'll get to that eventually so um at this point in time i Richard is moving down the coast and uh, taking cities and whatnot. And, and he, oh, so, okay, what he did, the reason why this is important about him taking coastal cities is uh, for resupply. He had obviously taken Cyprus, and uh, Cyprus was now under his control entirely. It was his domain. He became literally king of Cyprus. That was just, that was another title that Richard held. Uh, so all the resources that Cyprus had, all the fields, the crops, everything else like that, he was utilizing that as resupply for his campaign in, uh, in the Levant. So taking port cities obviously was an important thing so he's going up and down the port cities and reconquering the, the ports um and most of these actually held after the third crusade and into the fourth um so richard goes down um and i think oh sorry uh i i missed i missed a major atrocity part where this made this one of the worst bloody battles or bloody wars of, of atrocity. history yeah massive atrocity uh well i mean like it's is it technically a atro- an atrocity if it's the middle ages no, it was like a tactic. It was a very useful. It, it was a necessary thing, honestly. Because so when when Richard took Acre, uh, he had captured about two thousand seven hundred Muslims. Uh, I think they were mostly soldiers. Uh, and so he was bargaining. He was trying to bargain with Saladin or whatever about stuff. I don't yeah. know how it worked. So there was a big thing anyway. So what happened ended up happening is that Saladin uh, didn't take his prisoners back. It wouldn't exchange the prisoners. There wasn't an exchange. So. Richard had to deal with the prisoners. And so what he ended up doing, because uh, he made a bluff that he was going to kill all the, all the, you know, all the, all the prisoners. Well, it's not a bluff if you do it. Well, it's the thing. So I didn't thought it was a bluff. So he called his bluff. He's like, no, you won't. And he's like, I'm, you know, whatever. And uh, okay. So yeah. So Richard said, okay. And he literally, he, at that point he said, I'm going to march to Damascus or something. Uh, and I'm going to behead one sold or one of these muslims like every i don't know however how whatever i think it's a measurement he used that he was every so every few feet he's going to basically behead one and so like the trail to this city will be laden with beheaded muslims the whole the whole way and so slotin is like oh damn that's raw and uh in retaliation he started killing all of his christian 
you know, uh, uh, prisoners and everything else like that. And there became a massive slaughter of Byzantine and Christian prisoners uh, throughout the, the Levant at that time under is uh, under the uh, Ayyubid control and the, under the Ayyubid Empire, yeah. right? Um, and that it sparked the same thing. It was backlash. Anything in the Crusader kingdoms, any Muslims that have been taken captive for ransom under you know whatever they had all been. It was a it was a it was a racial genocide on both sides. Basically, it was pretty brutal. Um, so. Anyway, that sparked a whole deal about how this war was going to be fought. It was going to be bloody, right? There was going to be no quarter for either side. Richard was not here to fucking play, and Salahuddin was also trying to throw the fucking crusaders into the sea, right? So you had these juggernauts that were like genocidal maniacs that were also at the same time chivalrous and heroic <laughs> you know, and like no, you can't have one without the other. You really honestly you honestly can't. Like these these are in my opinion Richard the Third and and Salahuddin as well are juggernauts of history. These are two men that should be studied by everybody. Um, just because it's it's I mean, I don't know. This is this is this is a massive shaping of world history that we still see resonate. Like the, the effects of the Crusades still resonate today, um, in a lot of ways. I mean, like the 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 Arabs still call us Crusaders. Yeah. Like they well, when they're not calling us Jews, they call us Crusaders. Right, or puppets of Jews, or whatever yeah. the hell they want to call us. Yeah. So, yeah. So fair enough. Right. You know. So, but they do call us Crusaders still. Like that's the thing that a lot of people don't seem to realize in the Western world is that we are still known to them as Crusaders. So take that as you will. They're not really These friendly. Zionists and Crusaders. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, there's there's they're not really gonna be there. You know, there as a friendly unit <laughs> when they come peacefully, as they say initially. So yeah, so Richard, um, Richard beats off this army or whatever, right, of Saladin, uh, and achieves victory, and he's marching down the coast. And continuously, though, Saladin's having to burn more and more important ports, uh, and he's having to kind of like determine whether or not this is like you know, is this a, like, do I need this or do I not? And it, he determines a lot of times that a lot of the ports that he's like Haifa and his other ones, he does burn them uh, and raises them completely to the ground so the Crusaders can't use them, and it, it's cut, starting to cut off his ability to supply. Uh, oh, from Egypt. Yeah, yeah, his own stuff. And eventually he gets down to, he burned, um, he burns uh, the port that supplies Jerusalem and he burned Jaffa. Um, and so Richard takes it and they rebuild the cities, right? That's basically what they do is they rebuild these things. Um, and there's a massive fight at Jaffa uh, where they're, the Crusaders are massively outnumbered. Like Richard's forces are massively outnumbered uh, and just basically Saladin was just like sending the sending the horde and they they just tried to swarm you know zerg zerg rush <laughs> they zerg rush jaffa uh and try to take the crusaders um and at one point in time so richard's out there slaughtering in like in the thick of it knee deep in gore kind of thing just swinging his sword away slaughtering you know going berserk um and so he's he's doing all this extreme heroism on the field and eventually his horse gets shot out from under him he's on the he's on the front lines right like richard's like an actual warrior king um so his, his horse gets shot out from underneath him uh from an arrow or whatever right um and he just keeps fighting he's just on the ground next to his men you know boots on the ground sword in hand just in the thick of it just getting all kinds of gore all over him and Salahuddin sees this from afar and he's observing this because Salahuddin is not fighting with his men right yeah, Salahuddin <laughs> it, is like drinking rose water and he is though sniffing a flower yeah, he's like, like a typical uh, oriental this battle is so romantic <laughs> 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 he stands over there in his tent right so he's sitting there he's like 
what is this? A king fighting on the ground with his men? This cannot be. And he he, rum, he ruminizes about this for for a while, and he's like, this this he's he's blown away by this chivalrous heroism that he sees. Like right, it's like Richard is the guy that he that that Saladin reads about, mm-hmm. and that's what that's what really tickles this whole thing about it. Is that he he's he idolizes this man in real time as he sees him. He's like, God, this guy is like he's just the coolest man I've ever seen in my life. I love. It. He's like, and he doesn't even care that he's slaughtering legions of his troops. <laughs> like, and 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 unironically though, like Richard is as said from this from this battle specifically in Jaffa to have been standing on a mountain of corpses. And even the even even the Arabs right of this slaughter, like they, it's not even it's not even just a biased one sided opinion. Everybody recounts that Richard is standing on a mountain of corpses with heads strewn about him like wheat, freshly you know freshly uh, freshly cut, and all kinds of stuff as he's standing away said a one-man army basically like his his cohort was cut down around him his knights are all he's standing there by himself surrounded by these arabs as he's just slaughtering them one by one after the other and it's eventually they actually did stop they broke because of this like his knights broke this siege but as he's standing on the ground saladin sees sees richard and he's like i cannot believe that this man is on the ground fighting fighting alongside of his men and then he, he summons one of his his envoys over and he's like you take two of these arabian horses he's prized prized horses that are not cheap mind you right back in the day like an arabian horse is not even 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 today they're extremely expensive right back then they were considered extremely prized um and so i even even isaac the byzantine emperor himself had had a had a uh, a gold one apparently a gold arabian horse that he had ran away with when he was naked um from Richard, but so Saladin is like present these two Arabian. They go into the battle, which I thought was hilarious. Like, yeah, just waltz into the battle with these two horses, right? Like, just go down there, part the seas, like Moses, please, and go down there and deliver these two horses. I to mean, Richard. imagine yourself being an Arab soldier in this, and you're like, <laughs> wait, okay, we're having a timeout for a second. Wait, Saladin, the commander is giving the enemy who's like slaughtering everybody like some horses so he can fight better. Yeah, he's like, he's demor- making... peak demoralization. Right, like <laughs> the, the advantage he gave him an advantage. Like he had already like he was already beating the shit out of his troops on foot, and then he's like, all right, give him a horse so he can do it more efficiently. But like because because he, he thought that it was it was not it was ignoble that Richard was fighting on the ground with his men. Right, he thought it was ignoble, mm-hmm. and so he goes and pre- he sent the envoy to present the the horses to kill Richard. Richard, but don't kill my horses that I just gave him. Yeah. <laughs> but like that's I don't I, I don't know. I guess like, he didn't care about the horses. I guess right. I mean, like you're talking about Salahuddin is one of the richest men in the world at the time. I mean, it, possibly the richest man on the planet at the time in, the, in this point in time in history. Um, so like he sends the horses and Richard actually obliges him and he takes the horses and he, and he, he mounts the horses and he uses the horse and he continues to kill Arabs on top of an Arabic, an Arabic horse. Um, All right. So, yeah. So let's, let's get to the, uh, the yeah. end here. What, what, uh, Oh yeah. So this, I mean, he didn't take Jerusalem. Right. And that's, that's the problem. It's like all these great exploits are like the fun part of the crusade because you can talk about all the cool stuff that happened. Right. And like, you know, him taking all these cities. Uh, so the battle of Jaffa happened, uh, but Richard won the battle of Jaffa and turned, uh, Saladin away. Right. That was l- basically one of the last big ones. And they started to push towards, uh, started to take little cities, inland towards jerusalem but that had all been burned by Saladin. so he did a scorched earth policy mm-hmm. um leading up to jerusalem itself but uh richard got to uh one of the last cities there he starts with a b i can't remember what it's titled bethlehem 
no, no, no. <laughs> no. It was a different city. It was a fortress outside of Jerusalem. Uh, he got to that, and he was going to siege it, but he realized that he, he didn't have the, the logistics to pull it off, right? And so he stops, and then he retreats back. He, he has a logistical retreat back to the sea, and Saladin follows him, or he doesn't follow him for a second. He disbands his army first, and he's like, for the winter, he's like, oh, thank God. All right, we can rest for a second. Disbands his army, and then recollects it later. Because that was a big thing back in the Middle Ages. People don't realize that you didn't really have a standing army 24-7. Um, you, you know, reconvened when it was time to fight um so he disbanded his army and then richard again comes back for seconds or whatever right i mean whenever it's time to fight again he consolidates his forces and he, he goes back inland um and he gets to the same point um and he gets to the point where saladin's about to actually give up the city because saladin realizes that his forces are outnumbered he doesn't because he's fighting elsewhere still right and he doesn't have the ability to fend off richard while also dealing with these external threats and so he actually starts to evacuate jerusalem and richard this is like probably the the it's it's not it's it's the what is actually should be considered a um a bitter victory right this is an actual bitter victory because he's handed the victory by Saladin by him leaving the city and Richard can march in and take it the problem is though is that if he takes it he doesn't have the logistics to continue backing it up and hold the rest of of his territories right he doesn't have the manpower to garrison at Jerusalem there's a whole bunch of problems with him actually holding it because they're just going to come and take it again and that was a big problem and so richard sees this and he's like furious or whatever he's like fuming he's just like damn you know like ah and he's like just rage quitting that he can't he can't actually have jerusalem it's like there it's delivered on a silver platter and he's not allowed to have it um so what eventually he, he actually doesn't take it so eventually what he does is he he goes back to the coast um and they settle, you know, they, they settle it out or whatever. There's like a kind of like a truce. I think that's drawn up between him and Salahuddin, which allows for um, unmolested travel of Christian pilgrims to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. That's how the Third Crusade ends is with that treaty. Um, and basically what happened, though, is that Richard had to Richard didn't Richard was having problems back home. Um, and those problems back home was that Philip, that little rat decided to actually start attacking his, his his lands in in england and france and whatnot right and started to do that stuff and then yeah. obviously we know of the whole thing of robin hood and of uh, prince john trying to usurp the throne in england and so richard went home and had to deal with all that crap and spent the rest of his life fighting and was at the siege of one of, uh, of a siege of a, of, a, of a fortress or whatever and took a crossbow bolt uh he got gangrene and died and so that's the end one of richard of the, you know one of the things that i remember about richard is that he after the third crusade he basically said that what needs to happen if we're ever going to take jerusalem we need to do a crusade to take egypt. egypt yeah because strategically speaking you have to control egypt in order to control like the whole coast and he started to realize that when he was on the campaign on those coastal like, you cities you just couldn't like resupply from cyprus or right. from uh from Italy or something, well, Genoa. Well, because the Europeans could, but he realized that the, as long as the Muslims controlled Egypt, they could yeah. infinitely resupply the Holy Land, and that was apparently like the big crux of that whole thing. Right. And so that's yeah. why. That's why then they, when the Fourth Crusade in 1204, mm -hmm. they were like, "We're going to go take Cairo, Cairo," and then diverted to Constantinople. <laughs> now, that's the other thing about the Crusades, like, it, and and you know, tying this in with El Cid and everything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, from about you know the mid 10 hundreds to like 1200 there was like all campaigning from Spain Iberia all the way to the Levant and then also we didn't really talk about this but also Sicily the Normans took Sicily right in uh, you know the uh, the late 10 hundreds uh, Raja 
King Roger Sicily and uh, his brother Robert Guiscard like pushed and and pushed the Byzantines out too. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> Greeks and Arabs getting BTFO'd all the way down. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's the Middle Ages are. They're hyper violent. I mean, there's honestly the whole history of the Middle Ages is basically warfare. I mean, you could look at it in that lens very much so and tie almost anything to it. Even the trade, uh, the fashion, the culture, all of it. And it's all influenced by that. Like, why are there so many strange turban style culture, you know, fashion uh, um, um, displays in Europe uh, throughout the Middle Ages? Well, it's because they've had extreme contact with the middle, you know, the Middle East. Well, it's the same reason that the uh, Arab headscarf is like occasionally popular in the West now. Yeah. Uh, not as like a headscarf, but as like a, a neck scarf. Or something. Yeah, just in some in some way, shape, or form, right? Um, you know, one thing. So to round round all this out of uh, violent crusaders uh, fighting Muslims, super base. Uh, is we didn't really. I mentioned the Jews in Spain and how <laughs> yeah. this is like often in you know contemporary. Well, in the last several decades, Jews have written a lot of books about how Spain was a wonderful, uh, Muslim Spain specifically, was like a wonderful multicultural uh, paradise. Yeah, according and to the that's Jews in Cordoba. like extensively refuted. Like the the Muslims in Spain knew what they were dealing with. They were dealing with Jews. Right. Uh, the, the, the Christians in Spain knew they were dealing with Jews. I mean, right. they were El Cid also uh, when he was ruling in Valencia, uh, had Jewish administrators and stuff. Like they used them for what they had to be used for. Right. Uh, you know whatever ideological give or me the loan uh, <laughs> racial uh qualms they might have had about that yeah but there's this one story uh about the jews in spain from 1066 this would have been when el cid was a teenager mm. uh or a, a young man 22 23 and just illustrative of some of the like crazy shit that was happening in the taifa kingdoms of southern spain the muslim like petty states mm. So uh, I'm just going to read this to you. This is from uh, Reinhard Dozy, my favorite historian of Islamic Spain, who wrote this book uh, 150 years ago, probably, but it's still the best book on the topic. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about there is a Jewish, uh, famous uh, Jewish like administrator, wazir, vizier of yeah. uh, Grenada by the name of Ben Salib. And... Ben Salib, that sounds Jewish. Yeah, and he had a he had a son, or sorry Ben Shalib, and he had a son <laughs> by the name of Joseph, and the uh, Joseph was a total tyrant to the Berbers and the Arabs. And oh, you don't say. Yeah, and and eventually those the the Arabs and the Berbers got really pissed off at him. <laughs> oh wow, you don't and say. This again. is probably the funniest incident I have ever come across in like all of history. Uh, as far as Jews being removed from yeah, Iberia? Yeah, like the ultimate Shoah, like the funniest Shoah of all time. This is the funniest Shoah. Yeah. All right, hold on, ladies and gentlemen. Buckle in, listeners, because this is a massively bold claim. <laughs> this is supposedly the funniest Shoah of all time. All right, so... Uh, the Berbers... Uh, let's see. Hmm... I have to read it just because it's 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 that much funnier in, in uh, Dozy's like very academic tone. Oh, by all means, read it. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, the Berber guards are falling out in Grenada. They they don't like Joseph the the vizier, the Jew. Right. Uh, 
When others, less credulous and less blinded by passion, asked what reason Joseph could possibly have for betraying a prince whom he had entirely controlled, the prince of Grenada, the Muslim, mm. it was replied that when the Jew had compassed the death of this prince and had handed over his dominions to uh, the puppet, right. he would also rid himself of the latter and mount the throne. The Jew would become king. Yeah, usurp him. It is scarcely necessary to say that this was uh, mere calumny. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> the fact is that the Berbers wanted a pretext for overthrowing Joseph and plundering the Jews. Mm. Okay, well, shut up. Whatever. Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> upon whose wealth they had long cast greedy eyes. Oh, of course. Okay, whatever. I'll. Whatever. Fine. It's like uh, they say the same. It's the I, same I, line everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Believing that they had at last found such a pretext, they raised a riot and attacked the royal palace where Joseph had taken refuge. To escape their blind fury, Joseph hid himself in a charcoal cellar. <laughs> Apparently that was a thing. Uh, where he blackened himself as a disguise. <laughs> put on blackface. <laughs> but he was discovered, put to death, and crucified. Whew. <laughs> The Grenadians then proceeded to massacre the other Jews and plunder their dwellings. About 4,000 persons falling victims to their fanatical hatred, December 30th, 1066. Fanatical so, hatred. The, the same week that William the Conqueror is crowned King of England. Meanwhile, in Granada, the Berbers riot, overthrow their Jew-like master, who attempts to hide by blackfacing himself. Right. And this is not the only time this has happened. Did you know uh, the Jew head of the police in Berlin, uh, Isidore, Isidore you, during you know J Joseph Goebbels uh, bete noir right uh, his real name wasn't Isidore but nobody remembers his real name because Joseph Goebbels always called him Isidore uh, Isidore did the same thing Isidore was like found or after the Nazis took over was like chased and they found him he attempted how did this go he blackfaced himself somehow. <laughs> you can look up the details. Right. It was it was crazy. He did the. It was the exact same move. It was like, oh look, I'm I'm not me. Ha ha. So this is why I feel like all Jews have a very serious knowledge of their own history. Like I feel like they all know all the tricks. They all know all. Like, they, they they learn from themselves over time. Like they all read all the history and they know all the tricks, all the ways that they fucking con the goy over the years and know what we do fall to and what we don't fall to. I feel like they all study that shit. I feel like there's a. I feel like there's a. There's somewhere there is written a great continuity like a, like a great historical continuity text somewhere of all the jewish acts and things like that and they have it all somewhere i want that text because there's no way all these coincidences keep happening because these jews seem to know what all the other jews there's no way it's just genetic that they just do the same they, they would just act in the exact same way as all their predecessors you know they have to at least have gotten inspiration in some way shape or form to continue to to act in the same manner over and over and over again yeah so i'd imagine there is some kind of book out there that has you know some continuity with their history but yes yeah his real name was bernhard weiss i mean his real name was isidore like let's not <laughs> right like there was it, it was do you know about this like it kept being a thing in berlin that like Goebbels kept being brought up on charges for defamation for calling Weiss Isidore in the papers and prior to the takeover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just kept calling him Isidore, and people <laughs> like even in the Berlin police forgot that his real name was Bernard, and they just <laughs> called him Ber Isidore. <laughs> oh God. Okay, sorry. Here it is. Uh, 
they had to bury Weiss, Isidore, in the basement under a coal stack to prevent them, the Germans, uh, the NSDAP, from finding, from discovering him. They attempted to take Hilda, but her aunt, so-and-so, uh, a friend came to Weiss's assistance and drove him out of the country to Czechoslovakia. So they buried him. In, he attempted to bury himself in coal to, like, hide from, from Hell yeah. the Gestapo. <laughs> Hell yeah. 900 years later, same tricks. <laughs> same tricks. Never stop. That's the thing. Is like you never, you never stop to wonder. I suppose whenever, every time that there's a takeover or the fall of an empire or something, that there has to just be a show randomly. You know, no one ever stops to think about that for a second. Like the fall, the fall of the uh, of of the Muslim dynasties in in Iberia, the fall of Cordoba and the trade trade unions. What happened? Jews. So. What happened during the Reconquista? What was the first thing they were trying to accomplish, other than other than removing the Muslims from from Iberia? Who are they going after? The Jews. Yeah, <laughs> another show. You know. But to to bring it back to what we were talking Richard about, Richard apparently went after the Jews too. Yeah. So to bring it back to what we were talking about at the beginning, uh, Hitler's idea of education and that it should be you know heavily in uh, there should be heavily in history because that's important for forming a community. Yep. Uh, and should be uh, history of Europe, Greeks, Romans. So what book were you reading about all of this, about uh, Richard and the Third Crusade? Oh, a lot of this I I pulled off of, actually, the guy I had mentioned earlier that said I was reading some of the stuff from Von Sybil. Uh, but I was actually listening to a bunch of, uh, for the first time in my life, I was actually listening to some podcasts, just some random YouTube d- deep dives about people reading mm-hmm. things and quotes out of texts and whatnot and stuff. It was some pretty good, interesting things. They had some from history. I was I very rarely do that. Um, but for, I, I've been watching the last you know year or so Kings and Generals on YouTube. I'm not sure what that's a very good channel. It I'll just it has out. like autistic little maps with mm. units moving around and <clears throat> very well explained. It's mm. lots lots of views. Uh, I've noticed there's a of, lot of battles. Of... I mean, and wars across history. I mean, it's like oh. Roman times, like the Middle Ages, like a lot of Middle Eastern stuff, like a lot of stuff that you otherwise might not see. Mm. Uh, they got hundreds of videos about this. On uh, on the Crusades, I've read uh, Stephen Runciman. Uh, mm-hmm. I read Volume One of Three, which is the First Crusade. I haven't read the part about Richard Lionheart. I haven't read about Richard, like I was saying, since uh, high school. Oh right, because there's a bunch of I mean, there's a lot of good material. Again, there is some of it is in German, you know, again from from what I was saying earlier. But I've noticed that there's actually, and this is something that our our, our listeners can get into as well. Not the not the throw off our own our own uh, credibility or anything else here but there's a lot of really good history stuff coming out with the the younger white generation oh yeah and and in publishing too i mean it seems like right now if you don't want to talk about political shit which is every everything is political right you talk about history so you talk what you can talk about is you can talk about military history Mm. and it's like there's all these books coming out from several publishers like pen and sword is one of them or or osprey or whatever Mm. where it's just autistic military shit that you know by itself is interesting but you know i'd like it to be in, in cont- brought in with with other things other than just military but yeah, a little more gestalt if you are just if you if you want something where there's very little bullshit uh very little pause like military history uh there's you know 
tons of books now it seems like there's a renaissance of books and, and movies and, and stuff that especially I mean, with youtube yeah youtube channels, like they're I, doing a lot of really like multi-hour deep dives into yeah, history if it, it's a 12 year old like youtube had been around oh man i, I would have done nothing else yeah forget tv i would have just watched that all day like the, all the history and stuff that you could find like on the, there like old history channel back when they talked about history like sucks compared to what's available for free now oh yeah and then not just they just like the the individual ideas of of of, of personal living that they, they they express on YouTube, right? That you can see what it was like day to day in villages, right? What what it was like like for for people living in these different eras and the clothing and uh, what they would eat and all these other types of things. You can get stuff from their diets. You can get recipes. You can get all kinds of stuff about the the ancient the ancient world now. And it's you know I think that that's something that people should should utilize. And and again, the internet is misused a lot, uh, and we 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 look at it now as a savior in the in 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 our in our just you know desperate world was we look at it as a savior place to, and it is to, to go and collectivize i suppose and, and, and communicate but at the same time it's also a repository of information that we tend to neglect and it's at the, our fingertips we have literally the entire knowledge of the world basically at our fingertips yeah and it, it is almost a problem like i've in the last like year or two been kind of consistently amazed at how much information there is yeah and how much of it i don't know yeah uh, and how much how hard it is to retain information when you're like reading all this and that but it really helps when you do have a consistent worldview to start off with right because then it's not all random information you know like yeah, you plug everything into it when i first like discovered the jq mm. i almost just stopped reading for a year or two because i couldn't <laughs> like it, that that like breakthrough in knowledge was so revolutionary that it just made it any other high it was like i like od'd on information <laughs> and i yeah. just couldn't like nothing else was interesting for a while but after i kind of like worked worked it out now like i have to i feel my sort of rebuild my worldview from that interruption i have to like right. put all these other pieces in. okay now reading about the middle ages reading about ancient times all right well how does this all fit in and how what does it mean for us today yeah so uh, until next time hi hitler hi hitler Oh,